Okay, it's six o'clock and I'll call this special meeting of the Shawnee Mission School District Board of Education to order. If you would all please rise with me to say the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I'll next seek a motion to adopt this evening's agenda. So move, Goodburn. Thank you, Ms. Goodburn. Seconded, Sinclair. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Hearing none, that passes unanimously. Um, this evening we're here to discuss the application of public health recommendations during this time of COVID. I am going to turn it over to Dr. Fulton so that he can begin the dialogue tonight. Um, we have with us this evening some folks from JCDHE and Johnson County Public Mental Health. Okay, great, thank you. Uh, wonderful to see everybody tonight. I want to start off with some introductions. First of all, I want to introduce Elizabeth Holshue, who's the epidemi chief epidemiologist, I believe, at Johnson County Department of Health and Environment. Uh, she's been with us before, so thank you very much for, for coming back a second time. We appreciate that. And then Susan Rome is also with us here tonight. She's a deputy director of the Johnson County Department of Mental Health. Thank you for also joining us uh, for this evening of dialogue. Uh, as part of the presentation tonight, along with uh, Ms. Hoshu, we also have Dr. Christy Ziegler, who's our chief of student services, Shelby Rebeck, who's our director of health services, and Dr. Michael Schumacher, who's our interim Associate Superintendent for Human Resources. Now, I thought what we might do tonight is start off with some introductory information, and then uh, after that, just have an opportunity for dialogue with the board and the folks sitting at the table. So we want to go ahead and begin. As we get into tonight's discussion, as is true with every thing that we do, um, <clears throat> we always want to keep uh, focused on our mission. It really is an important mission, isn't it? We're, we're focused on every child helping them to find success in their life endeavors, build a foundation for their life that's important, and to do so in a way that has an inclusive culture, an engaged community, and um, really give them a lot of great learning opportunities for their personal success. And of course, everything we do revolves around our core, our core values, our core uh, uh, objectives of um, a personalized learning plan. You know, it's hard in a COVID-19 world to get your personalized learning plan up and going, isn't it? We find that true in our personal lives. And uh, we had hoped that this would be the year where we really get going with uh, deep development of personalized learning plans for every child in ways that are uh, age-appropriate, meaningful to them. Uh, that has been more challenging to do in this environment, to be candid. So, too, has uh, been making sure that they master the important competencies that they need for as building blocks for life success. Uh, we're working at that, the teachers are doing a great job, uh, but, it's, but it's difficult when uh, you don't have students in front of you every day. And then finally, uh, something that we all work at in this COVID-19 world is just getting the interpersonal skills we need for life success. Probably if anything, we're experiencing in society the need to learn to listen uh, to one another, learn from one another, reflect, on where we are as a society and and in the very best way that we possibly can move forward. COVID-19 is gonna be around for for some time perhaps. So we have some problems to solve and they're not easy ones to solve at all. 
So with that, you know, as I look at uh, those three objectives, is they don't just apply to our students, they probably apply to us as well. So we think about how to navigate this world. So with that, um, what we want to do is we want to have uh, Elizabeth give you an overview of kind of where uh, Johnson County Department of Health is with uh, some of their getting criteria, maybe explain a little bit about uh, some of the most recent updates that they've done. That will be followed by an update from the district on what we're seeing in our own data and some asks that we have of our community. And then finally, we want to give you a staffing update because there are some challenges that we face related to staffing. And Dr. Schumacher has some nice data to share with you that will give you an update as well on that issue. So without any further ado, Elizabeth, I'll turn it over to you. Technology, it's hard. Um, first, board members, thank you so much for having us here today. Um, I appreciate your time. I know that this um, global pandemic is not a position any of us thought we would be in. Um, the decisions that you all are having to make as board members are probably not what you anticipated when getting elected to these positions. And I recognize that um, all of us wish that we were not having to sit here and have these very difficult decisions uh, to make and these very difficult conversations. Um, so very briefly, I'm just going to talk about where we are today. Um, I didn't prepare a broad um, presentation just sort of to give you my insights that we're seeing at Johnson County um, and then obviously happy to answer any questions that you may have. Um, so everybody's pretty familiar with our gating criteria. Um, we've seen this before. I believe it, we were at this iteration when I saw you last time. Um, so really when we talk about two primary indicators, the, the main indicator being that incidence rate, so the number of cases that we see over a two-week time period per 100,000 population, and this is the metric that really allows us to compare from, say, Johnson County to some other counties of different sizes. Um, it's a way just to be able to compare different geographies. Um, and in that red zone, we had that at 251 or more per 100,000 population. We also look at percent positive, um, with the orange zone being between 10 and 15 percent and red zone being above 15. Um, and then we had set out our learning modes. I'd like to take you back just a little bit to when we actually originally um, created gating criteria and uh, remind you that in July when we were asked to do this as the local health department because schools were really hungry for some kind of guidance as to how to bring kids back safely um, and bring staff back safely given the community transmission we were seeing, when we started looking into what was available in the literature and data and science and other entities, it was really lacking. Um, you know, COVID-19 really started emerging in January. It came to the United States in February. And most communities shut down schools because there was a lot to understand that we didn't know at that time. Um, and then we watched as other communities around the country really did a pretty good job of tamping down the transmission of COVID-19 in their communities. And we saw some of them starting to bring schools back. Um, unfortunately, in this country, we were never able to get our case counts down to some of those same levels that we saw in other countries um, who are able to bring kids back into school. So to be very honest, when we started this in July and moving into the school year, we were able to look at the data and say, this is what we think is the best plan, but we really didn't know how it was going to work. We knew from what we had seen in our daycare centers and in our workplaces that masking and distancing combined were really effective in preventing transmission, and that's really what we hung our hats on. We also understood that elementary kids don't transmit the virus in the same way that older uh, um, adolescents and adults do, um, and they're still trying to figure out why this is. It looks to be maybe a component of the immune system is 
very different in young children because they haven't been exposed to a lot of viruses. Um, and so their body may have a greater ability to fight off this new thing that they're seeing, whereas adults maybe can't uh, fight that off as well. Um, and so we knew that elementary kids, while they can transmit, um, and we continue to see literature around that, particularly in households, in other congregate settings um, where they're not sharing the sort of living space, we really haven't seen that transmission. And that includes in our daycare centers as well here locally. Um, but we know that older kids can transmit it um, far more efficiently, which is why we had differing sets for when elementary kids could be in versus where middle and high school kids could be in. Um, so when we started back to school, I know that you guys took a very measured and uh, cautious approach and brought kids back, but we did see our other five public school districts go back into school at the end of August and early September, and we were able to watch what was happening in those schools, and what we saw was really amazing success. Our schools, including Shawnee Mission, have done an outstanding job. I cannot speak highly enough for the work that you all have put in to ensure that kids and staff are safe, to make sure masking is done consistently. I also want to applaud the students who have really adapted to this new life. Um, you know, I have a four-year-old who very happily wears his mask and, and reminds me and, and wants to make sure he has it on all the time. So I think everybody has done a tremendous job adapting. Um, and as we've gone through the first several months of schools being open in our community, we've continued to see this pattern of not a lot of transmission in schools. Um, and this is even with um, an approach that's a little different than what KDHE or CDC is doing when we look at who we're quarantining. So basically, if there's a positive in our school in a classroom, if everybody's been masked, both the individual who's positive and their contacts, we are not excluding them from school. We're not quarantining them. Um, and really, this is we, we inform them that they are a low risk. We understand that masks are not 100% effective, but we believe that they reduce the risk of transmission low enough that we could keep these kids in school. And really, we saw that to be true. Up until now, I think we've had maybe only three instances that I know of where there was a positive kid in a classroom and somebody who was not excluded in that first round ended up becoming positive. Three, in three months time with all of our elementary school kids being back in some way, shape or form during that time period. And that's really outstanding. And one of those happened to be due to snack time, right? And so things that we have learned. Um, and that continues to be the case. We really aren't seeing transmission in schools um, unless there is something like lunch period, right, where people are in fact close together. Um, and the same for staff. We're not seeing transmission from kids to staff or staff to kids unless there's a lack of mask wearing. Um, and that continues to be the case. However, um, as we all know, um, COVID in our community has changed dramatically in the last three weeks. Um, really since July 12th, when about two weeks after our um, after our mask mandate in this community, we went through one incubation period of COVID-19, so it's 14 days, and then we really saw our rates of cases and our percent positives level off for months, for three months. Um, we sort of just hovered in this same area, averaging somewhere between 90 and 100 cases a day. Um, and that was outstanding, and that was during the time we reopened schools, um, and we did not see schools being a driver of transmission in our community. And then three weeks ago happened, uh, the week before thank uh, Halloween, one of those holidays, the week before Halloween, we started seeing a really dramatic increase. Um, those case counts went from about 100 a day to 200 to 250 to 300 to 350. And today we had our first day of over 400 cases reported. This, I still stand by the fact that this is not due to kids in schools. 
It's not due to staff in schools. The school buildings, you guys have created an exceptionally safe environment where that transmission is not occurring. But what is happening is our community is quite frankly on fire. Um, the number of cases that are being spawned, particularly from social events, um, are really outstanding. Um, that weekend before we really started seeing that rise in cases, we got reports of a number of weddings where we had positive cases and clusters. Um, so, you know, when you have maybe five weddings in a weekend and there are 100 people at each of those weddings and you have a positive individual and that spreads, and then those individuals go back to their own communities or their own households and spread it there, you really start seeing this exponential growth, which is what we've seen. The majority of our cases are between the ages of 20 and 60. Um, and again, this is really seemingly driven by social interactions. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a big party. It doesn't have to be a wedding of 150 people. It's the football watch party where you have a couple of families come over and everybody's watching football or the Halloween party. Um, but we, and we've also seen this you know, with social gatherings even in teenagers where the fake homecoming dances or you know, that other Halloween party. So while we are seeing cases in your staff, in the kids, in your schools, they do not appear to be contracting it in the school building. And I think that's what's really important. We know the massive benefits for kids being in school. You guys wouldn't be here if you did not truly believe in the benefit that school can bring to kids. From mental health, to stability, to the economic impact if particularly elementary kids are at home. Um, and the reality is, is our six school districts have shown that we can do this in schools. However, with this increase in cases that we have seen, the number of individuals in our community that are positive for COVID, you're having impacts on your schools because those your schools are not in bubbles, right? Your families exist in your community and then they come into your school buildings. And so what we have seen at the same time as this rapid increase in our cases in the community are an increase in cases that are being reported by the schools, right? Kids who are coming to school and having symptoms or getting called in that they have symptoms or the staff member that has symptoms. This is not unsurprising because we know it's in the community and our community members are our community members are tired as I'm sure everybody in this room is as I know I am we're all tired of the pandemic we're tired of the isolation we're tired of being alone we want that connection and people have let down their guards and they're going to dinners and they're going to family gatherings and they're going to get-togethers and this is where we're seeing this incredible increase in cases um, and so from a community perspective we all need to come together at this moment and do the really hard thing of not gathering with people outside of our households because the likelihood that somebody you come into contact with that's infected is really very high right now in Johnson County and in the Kansas City metro area. And on top of that, not only are we seeing an increase in cases, and I know some people are like, okay, well, cases are cases. We're also starting to see this burden on our healthcare system, both in Can Johnson County and Kansas City Metro, but really in the entire region and in other parts of the country. Um, the six of our hospital CMOs uh, had, a, had a conference on Friday where they basically said, we're somewhere between concern and crisis. I looked this morning and I believe we had 21 ICU beds available in Johnson County, um, which is about 17% of our ICU beds. Um, and so what this really means is it's not just COVID, it's if you have a car accident or a heart attack or anything along those lines, the risk of us not having beds for those individuals if we don't slow things down really becomes critical. 
And the problem is, is that these individuals that you're seeing on this, that are represented in this rate of 608 per 100,000, which I'm gonna be very honest, I never expected to see a rate this high for us. These individuals are already sick. If they're, a proportion of these people will have severe illness associated with their illness. It's, it's statistical facts, we know that. And if we can't stop them from ending up in the hospital at this point, we cannot do anything about these infections that have already occurred. All we can try and do is prevent infections tomorrow and the next day to try and help save our healthcare system, but also save our schools. I know that there's been a lot of frustration with the Johnson County Department of Health and Environment that we created this gating criteria and we are now in red, <coughs> excuse me, it's not COVID, I promise, um, that we're now in red and Johnson County Department of Health and Environment has not said let's go remote, right? I know that's a huge frustration for people. But again, we're not seeing transmission in schools. That is not what's driving this. But again, because you guys don't live in a bubble as a school district, you're feeling the impacts and the staffing, and I, I know that you'll talk about this, what we're hearing from all of our different school districts is they're seeing an increase in positive cases that are from the community but are still coming to school you know, and then being sent home and were there while they were infectious. Um, we're also seeing a bunch of staff members who are exposed or infectious and have to be isolated and quarantined, which puts a huge stress on schools. Um, and the other really hard piece for us is while we've taken a very targeted approach to quarantining in classrooms, where it's just those people with a high risk exposure, um, one of the pieces in our guidance has always been that if there's a second positive in a classroom and it appears as though that transmission happened in that class, so that low risk contacts ends up being positive, we have basically said we can go, we'll go in and potentially quarantine the entire classroom if we can't definitively say that transmission didn't happen there, right? Like our goal is to keep kids in school, but to do that safely. And what we're seeing now um, in private schools and in some of our public schools is because these social interactions are so intertwined between our families outside of the school building, and then they come into school and you have multiple positives in a classroom, it's really hard to tease out, did it happen in the class? Did it happen at home? Did it happen in that social gathering? Um, and so we are seeing more um, classrooms that are having to be quarantined. Um, we've seen a couple of our grades in our private schools be quarantined for that same reason, right? There's a charity auction and a happy hour and a Halloween party all right back to back to back and then we start seeing positives pop up. We can't really tell where those each came from. Um, we're also seeing daycare is being impacted for the same reason. We're seeing so many positives in each of these different locations, workplaces as well, right? The more COVID-19 cases we have in our community, the more that each of our entities are gonna be impacted and that's really what we're seeing now. Um, but again, I cannot make this clear enough. The schools are not driving our transmission. If we were to close our schools down, if we were to go remote, I think we're gonna see a couple of impacts. One, we know all of these other impacts that we would have, the mental health, the financial stability, the economic impacts on our families. But we're also likely gonna see elementary school kids being put into daycare centers where they're not gonna potentially be as controlled as it is here, right? You guys, if in the school building, you guys are masking and distancing. If they're going to these informal daycares, the likelihood that that's occurring is probably not gonna be as high and that's gonna contribute to our spread. Um, and then you're, if you're talking about your older kids, the social gatherings and all of that are still also going to be occurring um, and they may be intermingling even more without masks outside of school. Um, so 
It's a very difficult situation. I'm not sure that anybody knows the exact right answer. Um, actually, on the way in, I was listening to NPR, and they were doing a story exactly about this, where they were talking to leaders from other countries. Um, so there's a, several countries, Germany, UK, um, who have shut down other parts of their economy but left their schools open because, again, they understand the importance of schools, and those schools are not being a driver of the infections in the community, and that's what we're seeing here. So. Our, what we are recommending is that schools continue to move forward as much as they can, given their current capacity. Um, and that may mean that remote has to happen or we may need to quarantine a classroom um, if we start seeing s some concerning signs. Um, but at this point, Johnson County Department of Health and Environment is not recommending going remote for all school levels. So I will stop there. Thank you. Um, I think before we move into questions, why don't we go ahead and continue with the presentations from everyone and then we'll circle back and have a discussion with everyone at the table, but we'll hear from all our folks first. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and take a look at um, where we're at in Shawnee Mission. So I'll start by sharing some of the information that we know in terms of the data that we're reporting on our dashboard. I'm going to talk a little bit about, and Shelby will jump in with me, about contact tracing that's happening here in our district with support from Johnson County Department of Health and Environment. And then we're going to talk a little bit with Dr. Schumacher and get into our staffing scenarios here in the district this evening. So. Before I start to get into the data, um, I would be remiss if I didn't take a moment to just acknowledge with much gratitude and recognition of the hard work that our health services team is doing, um, in addition to our, our teachers and our support staff um, across the district. Our health services team, including our building nurses, and we have five nurses that are now working as district nurses over uh, support of each feeder pattern, um, are key in our contact tracing. And contact tracing is one of those safety measures that was in place for us to come back into schools with our students. So the information, the communication, uh, the support that our nurses are providing at the school level, working with our students, our families, um, and also helping us know what we're going to share with you this evening in terms of the data um, has been nothing short of um, phenomenal and uh, just grateful for all of the hard work that they are doing uh, right now. Um, it is a tax on the system right now. I think they all would tell you that they are working the hardest that they have in a very, I don't know uh, what component Ever? of time. <laughs> um, but they are, they are key to what we are doing here and the safety measures in place for our kids. So with gratitude there. The dashboard. So we have several screens that we want to um, talk to you about this evening, share information uh, based on the data that just was posted yesterday. At our last board meeting, I think we had just announced that the dashboard was going live um, right after the meeting or the next morning. So this is really our first opportunity to come back and start to look at the data um, that we have collected. So in this first view, we're just going to look at the uh, active isolations of students and staff as of yesterday's date. So this was the previous week's data. Um, as we look through the isolation and the quarantine, the total N, or population, um, that's represented is 825 individuals. So just on isolation, a couple of things. Um, we had discussed that we would not be sharing any um, identifiable data. So anytime an N uh, representative group 
where a representative component of data is fewer than six, we will not report that. That's why we'll see the district logo at times. Too few to count or report and not maintain privacy. So uh, just starting with our active isolation of staff, as of yesterday, we had 53. At the student level, we had 315. So the next piece that we look at, active isolation, um, I'll, I'll take a step back, that represents the data for all positive, presumed positive, and symptomatic cases for the current report date. All of those fall under uh, a recommendation for isolation. As we contact trace, the questions are asked of those that are involved or the families um, when we communicate with parents to find out where a location of exposure would be. So you'll see that schools are too few to count or report. Extracurricular activities would be anything that's happening in terms of um, sports or activities out, uh, after school. Um, those are too few to report. And we see our greatest um, exposures between community and unknown. So when the questions are asked about whether or not it's known that you were um, in proximity to a positive case where this may have been um, contracted, if you don't know it was someone at school in an extracurricular activity or someone in the community, maybe a family member, maybe you were at a birthday party and someone tested positive, those would be community locations. If none of those three are identifiable, then you fall in the unknown category. I have no idea where I got this. I had no idea who I was exposed to that may have been positive. So we don't, we don't tease that out. Um, that's based on the recollection and the reporting of individuals, and that's how that data is placed into each of the buckets. Okay? Let's go a little bit deeper. So the data can tell us a story, and what does the data show in terms, of prox or, um, in terms of a greater data set? One of the questions we asked is if we look at the percent positive and we look at the total population of students that are currently attending our schools in person, what does the data mean? So if we look at the report period from November 2nd to the 8th, which we just reported on the 9th yesterday, if we look at the total number of students in isolation against the total number of students attending in person. That number represents 1.7%. So that's, that's a pretty good number for us to look at right now. Then let's take it a step further and let's look at more of an apples to apples comparison because what I just shared with you, that's not how the percent positive would be calculated if we looked at how the county calculates percent positive. Right? So if we look at the percent positive based on those students that have been tested, and I'm only talking student data right now, the last data screen we looked at students and staff. If we look at just the percent positive test results of those students who were tested in a two week period, because again the county looks at a 14 day rolling average, then our percent positive based on those tested would be 9%. Okay? That would still place us in the situation of where we're at in the gating criteria for our attendance models. And then the 14.3% is the current data that's reported today on our county's dashboard. So just looking at it incrementally for our district and interpreting that data in as in comparative a way as we can, 
with what we see on the county dashboard. That's where we would fall. Okay. The next screen in our data dashboard is quarantine, and I won't spend as much detailed time on the quarantine. Um, a similar layout is what we looked at in isolation. Again, um, the logo will appear if we're fewer than six cases to report. Active quarantine represents the data for all individuals who have been exposed to a positive case for the current report date. So if we look at that number currently, we're at 74 staff members and 383 uh, students. And those numbers did come up considerably from the previous reporting period. Again, if we look at location of exposure, you will see a high number in our community. And when you look at our students in quarantine, you'll see that school number has jumped up to 101. And in part, that goes back to the number of students in isolation, who when we contact trace and we determine where potential um, exposure may have been, we look at proximity, we look at mitigating measures, uh, we look at were both parties masked, um, were there opportunities of unmasking, as was shared, I think Elizabeth shared about snack time, proximity during lunch, or other scenarios that would create the need for us to um, look at a need to quarantine. And all of that's done in guidance in conjunction with our county health department. The last piece of data on our dashboard is we wanted to look at our overall impact across the grade levels in terms of maybe a rough estimate of what's happening with COVID in our schools and what's happening with the number of students in attendance. So a rough estimate of what we're looking at um, is reported here where we've just divided the student data, combining active isolation and quarantine, and divided that out over pre-K through sixth grade, our elementary students, versus seven through 12. And that's that data report right there. Okay, so a question we've been getting recently is when would we shut down a classroom and when would we shut down a school? So I think it's important to understand that when we quarantine a student or a staff member, it's because they have been exposed to a positive case of COVID. So I just wanna go through some of the terms here. Isolation, of course, is when you have tested positive, you are presumed positive, or you're showing the symptoms of COVID. So we as a school district tell you to isolate. If you have symptoms, you isolate for 10 days or you get a physician's alternate diagnosis or you get a negative PCR test. Okay, so that's isolation. Quarantine happens when you're exposed to a positive case and you must quarantine for 14 days. So that's the difference between the 10 days and the 14 days, isolation, quarantine. So we quarantine the individual when they're exposed. A classroom quarantine, as Elizabeth described, would occur when our contact tracing determines that that's necessary. So as we do that contact tracing, if we find that multiple students in that classroom are not masking appropriately or cannot mask appropriately, then it may end up that we quarantine that entire class. But as Elizabeth stated, what we're seeing right now in our classrooms is that our students and our staff are doing a fabulous job of masking. 
So it's very few times that we are having to quarantine an entire class. But as infection rates or the isolation of COVID-like illness, um, which includes flu-like symptoms, because you know the flu symptoms are so similar to COVID symptoms, as those approach 10% in a classroom and or a school building, our district would work with the county health department to determine the need to, rem to move either that classroom or that building to remote learning. And I think Mike's gonna talk here in a minute um, pretty in depth about uh, our ability to staff. So here's the point I wanna make to this board is all of this contact tracing is like a three-legged stool. The county health department is one of those legs. Shawnee Mission School District is the other leg. And then our families are that third leg. It is so important that all three of these legs be able to perform our job or the stool falls over, right? So if the county health department gets so snowed under with all the cases that we are seeing in our community right now to the point that they cannot perform their job to help us do our job, the stool falls over. If Shawnee Mission School District, if our nurses go out sick and can't perform the contact tracing, um, if, if we don't have the staff to staff our classrooms safely, if, if we get so many cases in our district that we literally cannot keep up with notifying people so that they stay out of school to keep the other kids and staff safe, that like the stool falls over. And if our families do not cooperate with contact tracing, if they decide on their own that they're gonna have a party and when they find out that three kids at that party tested positive and they refuse to cooperate and let us know who else attended that party, guess what happens? The stool falls over because those positive kids or potentially positive kids end up in our schools exposing our students and our staff. So it is so important. The personal responsibility with this virus is huge. That's all I have. So thank you, Ms. Rebeck, and thank you, Dr. Ziegler, for the, for the great lead-in. And good evening, everyone. Thanks for the opportunity to speak to our staffing and provide you the staffing update. Uh, just like Dr. Ziegler, I think I would be remiss if I didn't make a statement <clears throat> in regards to the great work that our, all of our staff are doing in the district. Certified staff, classified staff, and administrators, excuse me, are working harder than they ever have. Um, and that's saying a lot. <laughs> Traditionally, in good years, they work harder than anyone would expect. This year, they're working twice as hard. And so, <clears throat> just to recognize that. From an HR perspective, I think it's also important uh, for me to state that I feel, we feel in our department, that it's our responsibility to advocate for our human resources and to paint a picture that's, that's accurate for you, um, given where we're at. And so, with these next slides, that's what I hope to do. So, Dr. Ziegler, if you go to that next slide. So, in this first slide, um, simply want to talk about what's currently impacting staffing in the Shawnee Mission School District. And so, to try to, to tell this story, uh, to look at supply versus demand. And so, on the left side, you can see the demands that we have on the district um, in comparison to what they would typically be in a normal year. 
So the first number you're looking at is 52. And so those are the certified resignations and retirements that we've had since July 1. That's an extraordinarily, extraordinarily large number. Typically, in a given year, we would have three to five, maybe, uh, at this time. Those are typically related to a spouse taking a different job, taking a, a different job in another district, something like that. Throughout these next three uh, data points, um, they're similar. And so what you'll find is staff members expressing to us as a district concerns related to the pandemic, frankly. And that's why we've seen so many resignations and retirements. And so we've helped them gracefully uh, exit um, and to meet the needs of their, themselves and their family. Uh, 42 is the number of certified staff that we have on FMLA. And so again, an extraordinarily large number uh, given this time of year. Typically, I would say that's 10 to 15, um, most commonly related to you know, care of a child, childbirth, something like that. We're getting more staff members express concerns about anxiety, um, other conditions related to the pandemic. And again, our staff are working, um, in my opinion, very well with them to find and meet their needs. And so again, that is a large number, 42. Uh, currently, we have 15 certified staff members on, can you hear me? Um, on leaves of absence. Um, and so again, this is a, my mic cut off. Um, there we go. So 15 certified staff members on leaves of absence. Um, you're well aware that within our negotiated agreement, we have uh, provisions to allow for staff to take leave. Um, typically, there's, I don't know, three to five who've taken this for personal leave or health leave. We've got many more of these, again, related to the pandemic. And as uh, Dr. Ziegler and Ms. Rebeck just mentioned, um, we have more staff uh, who are having to isolate and quarantine. And so as of yesterday, that number was 127. So I mentioned all of these, um, not to cast aspersions or anything. I mean, these staff members have, have, making, have made decisions appropriate to them and their families. Uh, we're working with them to isolate and quarantine. They are simply increased demands on our system. So how do we deal with those demands? Uh, of course, we have a supply. And so the supply that we have are substitutes. Um, so we're talking about certified staff members. We partner with Kelly Educational Staffing, who has been a great partner over the course of the last four years. Um, to meet our needs. Um, and so just to, to look at those, um, that staffing pool to begin with. Uh, in a typical year, uh, we start the year with about 525 subs, which, which you'll see in um, coming slides, has greatly served our, our needs in the district. This year we started with about 500. Uh, we felt good about that number. Kelly felt good about that number, uh, giving um, the employment concerns everyone's seeing across uh, the United States. We thought that that could serve our needs well, and it did, and it did it initially. Um, Kelly's an employer, just like us, and so they are seeing demands on them, just like we are, um, and just like all, all other employers. And so that number has decreased for various reasons. They've taken leave, um, their staff have had to isolate or quarantine, or they've had resignations and retirements as well. Um, additionally, uh, to kind of go back to that demand side, um, if a staff were to resign, go on FMLA, take a leave of absence, our immediate response is to put a long-term sub in those positions as we try to, to backfill the position. So as those numbers have gone up, we've had to use more of our existing sub pool as long-term subs. And so that 384, take that 40 off of that. Those subs are no longer available to meet the daily needs um, of our teachers. 
Additionally, uh, we've put 85 building subs into buildings as an intervention. We feel like it is, it is a great intervention that's worked well. Um, we've done this because we are, of course, serving multiple modes of education this year. <clears throat> we have remote needs and in-person needs. In previous years, if, if I needed a sub, I would put in for a sub. That sub would show up at the building. They'd take, take the kids through my, my sub plans, and we'd all be good. This year, if I have remote students, um, that sub now needs Canvas access, WebEx access, credentialing, and so on. And so that's the need for those uh, building subs. So I say that because those 125 subs have, again, pulled away from our, our dwindling, dwindling supply. Okay? So that tells that story. Um, next, just kind of a glimpse at where we've been historically. Uh, prior to um, uh, partnering with Kelly Educational Staffing, we did it in-house. We, we met our needs in-house, and we did the best we could, and we did a pretty good job. Um, we were at 93% fill rate the last uh, year that we were uh, doing subs ourselves. Um, the decision to take um, subservices out for a request for proposal was made because we weren't satisfied with that fill rate, nor were our staff members. And so since partnering with Kelly, you can see on the right side um, that our fill rate with them has been 99%, which again has been extraordinary. And so just a, a quick glimpse at the high performance we've had. However, if you go to the next slide, um, you can see that we have had a dwindling um, fill rate this school year. And so this body, uh, appropriately, appropriately so, um, throughout previous board meetings has asked you know, how we've been doing uh, with subs. And I, I believe I reported pretty well, uh, but we anticipated a decline. And that's exactly what happened. So you'll see that through uh, week one through week six, um, we were performing at about the rate that we would expect, at our traditional rate. Since week six, however, uh, you can see a pretty, a pretty steadily decline of our fill rates. Uh, that is, of course, due to what we've just uh, spoken about, the high demands, the increasing demands, as well as a dwindling supply of substitutes. I would tell you that week 11, 90.5%, um, that's not satisfactory. Um, that's the worst we've been since you know my five years in the district. And we heard from staff members, we heard from principals last week that there was a concern. Um, so I, I also want to make note that Kelly has been a great partner throughout this. There's, there's no blame to be, to be placed on Kelly Educational Staffing. They are out there recruiting just like we are to try to fill positions. We are working tirelessly to try to fill positions. Um, the pool of candidates is simply not there. So if you go on to the next slide, um, just to give you a full picture of where we're at, guys, this is today. Um, and before I, I jump into to today, um, I want to make a statement about yesterday. So yesterday was our worst fill rate that we've had. It was 79%. And so we did hear from many principals uh, that they were having a very difficult time filling, filling vacancies. Um, today was better. Today was 83%. Still very, very low compared to what we've been in the past. Um, what I hope this slide also points out is that this is, <clears throat> this is not a Shawnee Mission problem. Um, Shawnee Mission does currently have a problem meeting our, de our demands, um, but we are performing better than our peers. Not that that's acceptable, but we, we are doing better than our peers. And Kelly continues to work very, very hard at that. Um, so if you go to the next slide, um, I'm hoping and I'm guessing your question is, what are we doing about it? You know, what, what, what are we doing to meet these vacant, unfilled 
uh, positions. Um, before I, I jump into these, um, I do want to make a couple additional statements. Again, recognizing the fact that our teachers um, are planning more, they're working harder um, in this really challenging environment. Additionally, um, there's clearly stresses on our system. Um, there's, there's no doubt about that. I think you can see that through my slides, through Shelby and, and Christie's slides, and through Johnson County uh, Department of Health slides. Um, and even though, I'm gonna go through these points, and even though there are practically effective solutions um, in ensuring supervision of kids, and ensuring um, the continuation of learning, we also know that it's not sustainable, that, that long-term it puts additional stresses uh, on our system and on our staff. So starting with number one, and this is in order of, of what we would ask principals to do. Uh, Kelly Educational Staffing subs work the entire day. Um, seems like a no-brainer and, and maybe not a big deal, but it does put stresses on Kelly. It does put stresses on that substitute. So what happens if, if I need a sub? Um, that person shows up for me. I'm a biology teacher. I teach six sections. I have a plan period. If you're subbing for me, you don't get that plan period. Um, that principal probably comes to you and says, hey, we need you to sub for so-and-so uh, you know, to, to, to piecemeal that vacancy. Number two, uh, part-time teachers, um, voluntar voluntarily working additional time with compensation. And so this example would be I'm a part-time teacher. Point five, uh, my principal comes to me and says, hey, Mike Schumacher's class is unfilled. Are you willing to cover his classes the rest of the day? Again, we compensate our teacher for that, but additional stresses, right? Um, that, that staff member chose to be part-time for a reason. You know, they, they chose that for their family and additional stresses. Um, specialized staff members um, covering additional classes. So these would be counselors, social workers, school psychs, uh, specialists at, at elementary, um, coming to them and asking them to pull away from their traditional duties and cover classes. And so clearly we hired them to do specific roles, to be a counselor, to be a school psych, um, or to ensure supervision. We're having to, to pull some of them away from, from those duties. I've already spoken to and show has, so has Dr. Ziegler about uh, the, the additional and extreme amount of, of stress that's being placed on our full-time teachers. And when possible and with agreement, um, you know, principals will come to them and say, are you willing to teach during your plan period? Um, we'll pay them, we compensate them for that. Um, but they're, and, and I think I should mention this too, um, at least at our secondary level, we're different than our county peers. Um, so some of our county peers, if they're teaching five out of seven, an additional period during supervision is not as, not that that's great, but it's not as much stress as, as some of our staff are, were being asked to, uh, um, to have. Uh, fifth, our educational aides and paras. And so again, um, something that um, would be of a, a last resort uh, if they're licensed. Uh, so if they have a teaching license or an emergency substitute license, uh, they can be asked to fill these substitute vacancies. Um, Excuse me, but as you know, um, these folks have have jobs that we've assigned them to that are that are special needs. And then finally, I think we would all be remiss, and I don't think this body uh, ever overlooks our building principles. But I think sometimes folks can. Um, they're under um, they're working harder than ever as well. 
And so they're covering classes, they're uh, supervising lunches for extended periods of time, uh, while at the same time still serving the needs of the building as the building leader. And so uh, these are the things that we're doing, guys. Um, and again, uh, I think it speaks to the extreme efforts that we're going, going through to meet the needs of our kids. Um, and we're doing it to the best of our ability. Um, so the next slide, um, again, I would be remiss, and, and I apologize for not spending as much time with classified staff because we do know um, that they are essential um, to the operations of our school district. Uh, we cannot run school, we cannot educate kids without um, the service of these folks. Uh, it's harder to track their absences uh, just because of the nature of how they clock in and clock out. Uh, but just to give you a quick update of vacancies, um, AIDS, educational aides, we have 26 vacancies. Paraeducators, 50. Uh, operations and maintenance, 28. Uh, food service, uh, 45. And speaking with my colleague today, Ms. Uh, Michelle Morris, uh, she indicates to me she handles classified staff. This is about twice as much as we would typically have at this time. Um, because of the nature of those positions, very rarely do we have 100% fill. Um, but, but that is um, above, above the norm. Additionally, uh, we have 14 uh, classified staff members out on FMLA. So that does conclude my, my staffing update. I, I hope it provides a look at the overall picture of the demands and, and the supply that we're dealing with. I, I do want you to know, and I think you recognize this, that um, all of us, our department, is working extremely hard to, to meet these demands, uh, to work with Kelly in increasing the supply that we have, uh, hiring positions uh, that we have vacant, uh, and we will continue to, to do that to serve the needs of our kids. Uh, so with that, I'll throw it back to Dr. Fulton or Ms. Housley. Okay, thank you. That concludes our report. and. Uh, Everyone here is going to stay and, and participate in the discussion. So if you have questions, we're happy to uh, respond to them or just engage in dialogue around some of these issues. Okay. Um, I'm assuming we don't need to shut the doors to keep you here. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, Mary and I had discussed briefly how to try and keep the conversation cohesive and productive because there's so much here. And so we were going to try and or I'm going to try and keep us on themes, if at all possible. Like, I, we identified four themes. So there's logistics, there's mental health. We didn't hear directly from Johnson County Mental Health, but I know we have questions for you. So maybe we'll, I'd like to focus on logistics with Dr. Schumacher first. Um, and then if we can get an opportunity to do um, some mental health questions and then maybe move back over to JCDHE and talk about your recommendations with regards to academics and athletics. Um, but it seems like in my opinion, logistics are probably a primary concern because before we get to anything else, we actually have to be able to operate. And um, so I'm gonna start off with some questions with regards to the trajectory that we're looking at right now. It is my understanding that we are potentially in, on a track to be in trouble with regards to being able to provide services simply because we will have staffing shortages and are you able to discuss our projections as to where it is that we hit a bump? Where, where is it that we get in trouble? So we're asking people to do, I'm gonna preface this by saying we are asking people to do almost the impossible with the amount of stress happening with regards to the pandemic. We already have an extraordinarily efficient workload 
for our secondary educators because they are already teaching six out of seven. So we have a system that is both under stress due to external factors and does not have the cushion built in to help absorb some of that stress that our other districts in the county have. So that being upfront, because I'm not sure if people listening to that, if they aren't familiar with the nuances of the fact that we have six out of seven instead of five out of seven, I'm not sure people listening at home would grasp that. So we are, we are at a point where our system is under extreme duress and we can project based off of some of the numbers that you have now, when that becomes very critical for us with regards to operations, regardless of where our infection rates are at, regardless of where our capabilities are under your recommendations, if we can't open our doors, we need to be able to have that conversation. So if you could discuss that, that'd be fantastic. Okay, there was, there was a lot there. Um, yeah, I, sorry, I got a lot <laughs> of me. No, it's good. Um, so I think Elizabeth spoke to it as well. Um, I mean, we don't exist in a bubble, and so we're seeing the impact of the community on our staff, um, in particular to the, the numbers that are having to isolate or quarantine. I don't have a crystal ball, um, and so um, I guess I would refer you to the trajectory of our fill rates, um, and 79% yesterday, 79% yesterday, 83% today. Um, last week was 90% as, as a whole for the week. Uh, we're used to 99%. Um, I, I tried to boil it down to demand versus supply. So the demand is high and I know Kelly will continue to work and we will continue to work to fill positions. I think all, both, both systems are gonna have a difficult time increasing that su supply to a level to meet the demands. So realistically, the demand is not only high, but it is actually going to get higher. Because we are at a rate in our community right now where we have a significant amount of growth with the virus. And whether or not people are contracting it in our buildings, our teachers live in this community that has this high rate of infection that is going to get higher. So we are going to have a more critical need to be filled with an ever dispersing ability to fill it. If we maintain the trajectory that we are on right now at 10% a week, projecting out, dropping 10% to next week, dropping 10% to the week after that. When we hit Thanksgiving and we have a 60% fill rate, are we capable of operating when we return from Thanksgiving break? Each percentage rate in decline is, it, it impacts our ability to run schools. Um, yeah, without having a crystal ball, I'm not, I'm not gonna. I, I'm, yeah. I, am, I am full of projection right now. Okay, okay. But I'm also saying this is a real situation with regards to how do we logistically address it. Mm -hmm. we, we don't know. I mean, we don't, we don't have the information, but we also told our community that we would provide them with information they needed to prepare themselves for what was coming down the line. That's right. And I think we're in a situation right now where we need to be having a very real conversation to where something might not come from this end of the table, but if staffing isn't there, our people in our community need to be aware of that. Yep. I, I would tell you that I'm concerned about our ability to, to, to staff schools. Is, is there a magic number on this fill rate where it goes below 80 and we're I, yeah, in horrible shape, or is it just... I, I've never dealt with that. I think it, it's so individualized per building. I was out in, in buildings on Thursday um, seeing principals and such, and, and three of the five said they were okay. 
So it just depends. Um, they said that their building subs were working effectively. They were able to, to fill their, their needs. Uh, but overall, as a district, yes, we are reaching a point where it's very, very challenging. And, and clearly, it has to do with the number of staff they have out on leave, the number of staff that are having to isolate or quarantine. All of those play into individual factors at the building level. Um, you know, I don't know if, yeah, it, it's, it would be an extreme challenge to start pulling people from different locations to try to meet specific building needs. So to answer your question the most directly that I can, yes, it is getting, we are reaching a point where it's challenging to, to meet the staffing needs of the district. One of the, one of the challenges that we face, I think everybody faces in their data, <clears throat> is that you try to project and anticipate what might come next. Well, there's not good metrics on this, right? Because we haven't been through a pandemic before. So we know that traje trajectory is out there. We would like to be able to project, even at a building level, when we might hit that point where we might anticipate having to go into remote-only mode. But we don't, have a good, we don't have good data trends established to know exactly when that happens. But we do know this. Just like a snow day, it's very disruptive if you have to call school off, particularly if you have to call it off immediately. And we talked about this 14-day window that we might be able to anticipate that we're heading toward this point where we may have to change modes, gear back to uh, hybrid or go remote only. In some cases, it may be possible to project that, but in other cases, particularly where staffing is involved, it may not be possible. So that's... The, we just share that as that's the reality that not only we face, but that's the reality that schools around the, the country and probably globally are facing, actually. It's not very reassuring, I know, but it's the reality that we face. So I have one more follow-up, and then I'm going to defer to my colleagues around the table. Um, with regards to the sub pool, we have subs that fill at the high school level, subs that fill at the elementary level, and not all subs that can fill at the high school level, can fill at the elementary level, and vice versa. Is that correct, or can they just fill wherever they need to fill? They can preference, the subs can preference, and our staff can preference specific subs that they want, but in general terms, that pool can serve the needs of the entire district. Outside of the 85 that we've placed in individual schools and the 40 that we have in long-term subpositions. Is the critical shortage greater at the high school level versus at the elementary level? I, I, I would say no because uh, secondary schools are larger, there's more staff uh, to do these um, auxiliary methods to, to meet the needs. If I'm a smaller elementary school um, and I have two or three staff members out, it's going to be hard for me as a principal to piecemeal uh, the coverage of, of that classroom. At the elementary Elementary, building. right. Also it's complicated by the the importance of cohorting. You know, in the past, if you had to, if you got in into, into an emergency situ situation, you could take children and, and put them into different classrooms. But with our cohorting model, that really is not what we should be doing. And so that also limits what our options are as we try to solve this problem at uh, the building level. I'm going to turn to Dr. Sinclair. Do you have some questions at this point? Uh, along these lines of um, uh, working within kind of a, a highly efficient K-12 staffing model, um, so we have very little flexibility to absorb kind of this impact of the pandemic. 
Um, but I'm just even thinking about, can you, can you speak a little bit more about the impact? Because there's such little flexibility. I'm just looking at each of these and I'm wondering, how is the current um, situation impacting our capacity to kind of really address some of the goals of our strategic plan? So for example, I'm thinking about if we're having our secondary teachers give up a plan time to cover that's less time for them to provide feedback to a student or to plan and provide that individualized learning. Or if we're um, short on subs, what kind of impact is that having on our capacity to, use, to do professional development towards deep equity training? Or Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure, be happy to and invite other team members to jump in. Uh, one of the things that we have done over the years is we have used substitutes to help with targeted professional development. So to give teachers time to leave their classroom and, and go do uh, professional development. We're not doing that this year at this point, because we can't. Um, secondly, and you hit upon an important point that was uh, brought up uh, several times earlier, we, we have limited flexibility at the secondary level. I mean, whereas other uh, surrounding districts might be able to have a teacher on uh, a, uh, a second uh, period that's not assigned for core instruction that they might be able to go and help out with a class. For ours, is simply taking away from the only plan time that they have. And so that is highly problematic, especially when you're in a situation where you're, you're teaching hybrid anyway, so you're working with students in class, you're connecting with students outside of class. That alone is, is, a, is a challenging balance. And so that, there's no question. Our, our, we have limited, we have more limited flexible, we have more limitations on us than some of the other surrounding districts at the secondary level in terms of options to solve these problems. And I think it puts more stress on our teachers because of that. So I don't know. You worked in secondary for a long time, Mike, so. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I mean, those numbers that we're giving you are minus our typical professional development days that, that we would have, or our CNI department um, working with curriculum cadres. And so we, we are foregoing some of that work that we would typically do. Yeah, so it's, is it having an impact? Yes. I'll just work my way around the table. Um, Brad, you're still adjacent to Mary. Do you have any questions at this juncture? For Dr. Schumacher? Yes, I, yes, I do. Um, on an earlier slide, we talked about the Kelly subpool at 525 and then currently at 384. Can you remind me, is that a subpool that's dedicated to us or are there other neighboring districts that also tap that subpool? And then the follow-up question that would be based on the fact that another slide showed that some of the other districts are having even a tougher time are we essentially competing with other districts within the subpool? That that is our subpool, 384. That's the Shawnee Mission subpool. They do have seven other school districts, uh, Mr. Stratton, in the metro area. Um, but I would tell you that we have a dedicated pool of subs who value our schools, and our our um, substitute pay rate is higher than all of those other schools. So to say that we're competing against them to some extent, but most subs want to work in the Shawnee Mission School District. Great, thank you. Reverend Guy, do you have any questions for Dr. Schumacher? Um, are teachers who are in quarantine but showing no 
symptoms. Are they still able to teach remotely from their homes or are they not able to teach at all? Yes, they, they can if they wish to and they agree to, um, but that candidly does not help us uh, a lot uh, because um, they, they can do that and that's the best thing for students. Uh, they can deliver the instruction appropriately. They know the kids, all of those advantages. But we still, if it's an in-person class, we still have to provide that supervision of those learners physically. So it's either a sub, a building sub, or one of those other methods that we spelled out. But yes, they, they can work remotely. Thank you so much, Dr. Schumacher. I appreciate this, your presentation. Um, I have a couple questions. Are we just doing one at a time? or You can do a couple, that's fine. Okay, so um, how, if, if a school should, be, um, should not have enough staff, for example, what does that look like for parents? I mean, how, you know, if, if a couple teachers wake up in the morning and, oh my goodness, you know, I'm not feeling good, or, you know, my, my daughter, she had a teacher that was pulled out in the middle of the day yesterday because she was, you know, had exposure, and, I mean, it's just this crazy mm -hmm. situation we're in. But I'm just concerned for parents in terms of how much notice are we able to give parents if we're, if we're going to have to close a school. For, yeah, um, so two, two things, I think. Um, if there's a long-term sub being placed in that, that building or, excuse me, that, that classroom or that um, section, uh, there would be clear communication from the district through the principals about who that person is going to be to those parents. On a daily basis, um, I would have a hard time speaking to that. It's probably the capacity of the principal to provide that information to that principal, or excuse me, those parents, uh, given all of the other things that they're dealing with. Um, but there would be as much communication as possible. Um, if we had to shut a school down, I think was your last question. Um, I, I don't know. I think I would defer to Dr. Fulton on that. That's not a, a scenario that we've discussed in our department. So pose the question again, please. I'm just concerned about parents if, you know, we should wake up, if teachers should wake up in the morning and multiple teachers should be out sick um, or and or quarantining. Um, and we, we don't have enough staff. What does that look like? How much notice are we able to give parents? I mean, would yeah, we that's, school down on a dime? What does that look like? It's a worst case scenario, but uh, if we had to shut school down, we would. And then we'd have to contact parents and safely get kids back home. I mean, it's, it's, uh, that would be a very, very challenging situation. It, you know, it's, we've experienced that before you get a gas leak, for example, or some environmental event that can happen and then you have to shut school down and send children home. I mean it's it happens from time to time but that that's a scenario that could occur. That's what we're trying to avoid though. Making sure we don't have situations at a building or in the district get to the point where where that happens because obviously that has uh, has impact on students and, and families. Thank you. Um and then Dr. Schumacher had mentioned, you know, when he was out visiting buildings last week, three out of five were fine. Um, so would we would we look at schools individually to close schools individually due to staffing, or would we just say as a district, this is our plan? Well, that's one reason why we wanted to share this information with you tonight, because we will be working closely with JCDHE on this. Uh, we'll be looking at building level data as well as district data. We'll be uh, paying close attention to these trend lines. And we feel like we're getting to a point where we may have to close 
uh, a school down because of infection rates or uh, staffing, then we want to try to anticipate that, give parents a heads up, and then move into a remote-only mode for the amount of time that would be necessary to then get things back to, to normal so that we can bring students back into the classroom. So I don't know, Elizabeth, if you want to add anything to that or not, but that's, that's, where, that's what, one of the reasons why we wanted to make sure and just have this dialogue tonight because you're kind of getting a feel now for the, for the variables that we're starting to look at. Yeah, I think that um, because our broad recommendation is not to go remote as a whole, but recognizing that the staffing capacity at each of these school buildings within each of our districts is going to be that linchpin that allows schools to open. Um, you know, from the health department's perspective, we are going to take a very targeted approach. That's always been our approach with COVID is quarantining those that are at highest risk of getting infected and spreading that to others. And so from our perspective, it would likely be on a class by class basis based on what we're seeing in terms of transmission. However, I do think again, because of the high rates of transmission in our community and the impact that's having on staffing, it's going to come down to a staffing issue, I believe, uh, that will eventually lead to um, schools having schools or schools districts having to choose to go remote. And I think, Shelby, if you could add that to that just a little bit, because we actually have some of this already going on. Yeah. Historically, we have followed the Johnson County Department of Health and Environment recommendations for as we approached as we approach 10% for any one illness. So we've done this for norovirus. We've done this for shigellosis. When we have um, approaching or at 10% of our student population, either within a class or within the building, um, at that 10% level, we would work with the county health department to determine, do we just need to send this class home? Do we need to send this grade level home? Do we need to send this building home? Um, building is usually when there's widespread, it's like shotgun, you know, you've got, if, if it's norovirus, you've got nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea in multiple classrooms, multiple places in the building. So to me, that's times when we have shut down an entire school to do a deep clean, usually for a couple of days kind of thing. And that is a situation where we're calling parents and we're saying, you know, we got, everyone has to leave come and get your student as soon as you possibly can. We want to avoid those situations if it's related to staffing, if at all possible. I mean, I'm, I, I'm envisioning that we're going to see this gradual creep up, but you're absolutely right. If it is a call-in the morning of and three, you know, we're barely on the brink of being able to staff and three people call in, it, it very well could happen. Mrs. Go ahead, Dr. Sinclair. Um, well, I just, we've, I feel like, are we shifting to a conversation no, and about and with JCDHE and needs to? I, yeah, I think we should still stay on logistics if we could stay on logistics for a little bit. I mean, we haven't even gotten around the whole table yet okay. for our folks to okay. ask logistic questions. And I think, I think one, we're opening up a bigger conversation. Yeah, agreed. And when we get to the JCDHE portion, I think it's going to, then we're really, it's going to be a long conversation. But. <laughs> <laughs> if we could stick to logistics for just a little bit longer, I think that would be great. I, I would it's like all to It's all interrelated. It is all interrelated, like but yeah, right. Did you have another follow-up? Jamie, are you good? Okay, Miss um, Embry. Yeah, I, I would just like to understand, I think you mentioned we've had more resignations than typical and we have 
I, I mean, we've all gotten the same emails. Our, our staff are so stressed out and they're taking on so many things and I'm curious if we have any sense of, if we have kind of long-term staffing repercussions um, because I think the sub shortage is one thing to figure out and one thing to think through, but I think burning through our teachers is another thing that could have really lasting repercussions for our district that I want to be thoughtful about. I, I don't disagree. Um, you know, as a department, we take great pride in who we recruit and hire and onboard and continue to coach, and we are very proud of, of our teaching staff, and we think they're the best um, in the city. So, yes, I have the same concerns. Um, you know, we, we have had a number. We have had 52 resignations and retirements. Um, again, those folks made the best decision uh, for themselves and their families, and, and we you know, worked with them, and we waived penalties. This board waived penalties, which was, in my opinion, very, very appropriate. Um, but yes, I mean, um, the, the teaching pool across the country is, is low, right? Um, we are fortunate in Shawnee Mission that we are a high-performing destination district who pays our teachers well and has wonderful facilities and um, all of the things that we offer. So we don't have as many uh, recruiting challenges as some districts. Um, but yes, that, that would be a concern of our department is having to backfill a number of these positions and um, you know, facing a, a staff that's um, been under a tremendous amount of stress this, this year. Does that answer your question? I might I might expand that just a little bit. I I, I think that uh, what what we're seeing again nationally is education in general is under tremendous stress. Stress. We understand that we're essential employees, but we're also in the crosshairs of uh, a lot of public disagreement on what should happen under COVID. Let's be honest. There's a lot of public discourse on this. Uh, that's maybe a nice way to put it. And the amount of stress it's causing in schools across the country is, is tremendous. It's in, here we are in November, and the toll that it's taking is already dramatic and noticed. And so what we're trying to do is do the very best we can to acknowledge that, support folks, and also uh, make sure that we're trying to get to good decisions about running sustainable models for learning. Sustainable for children, sustainable for their parents, and also sustainable for our staff. And this is a difficult balance that we're in, uh, as a, both in Shawnee Mission and really across our country. I noticed that you have a recruiting event coming up mm -hmm. the week of Thanksgiving, I we think, do. maybe. November 19th. Can you speak to that? Could some of those new hires actually come on board January uh, whenever for Yeah, absolutely. Great. Thank you for bringing that up. So sure. November 19th, we do have a virtual recruiting event. Some of you have been to our uh, local one that was, was here. Of course, we've moved that to virtual. And so um, we're um, a little strapped in our department as well. Uh, we're down a couple staff members. Uh, but we've worked with Dr. Tyrone Bates and Ms. Pam Lewis and Mr. Kevin Hansford, and they're helping with our recruiting efforts. So they are working with our existing uh, student teachers. Uh, those candidates were meeting out at rec virtual recruiting fairs, inviting them into this virtual interview night, and we will be making early offers um, to those December graduates, and then and additionally to those August graduates who we think are high flyers so that we get those people in place right away. So we're acting very fast and aggressively. Um, I think there is something also that we should touch on with regards to priorities about where we put the subs. Um, 
I mean, I think for the most of us, we understand that our youngest students, if you're learning online, that is going to be a taller task than it is for our secondary students. And if we are looking at a situation in which we need to be plugging holes, then I think there is a conversation to be had about priorities about where to plug the holes. If it means that with regards to six out of seven at the secondary level and you know the critical staffing shortages at the secondary level not being able to be filled, but perhaps if we go remote at the high school level, then our sub pool can concentrate on filling the need at the primary level where we've got kindergartners that I mean, they're adorable, but you know they, it, they are going to benefit better from the in-person instruction. I think there's a common sense test there, and I think that it's probably coming soon. I mean, not to be, I, I, I really just want to be very clear for the parents who are watching this. We told you we would give you two weeks. We told you we would give you two weeks notice. So I'm telling all the parents of this district right now that our community did not get their act together and we are going to have to make some really hard choices here really soon. And so get your plans in place for what you need to do. I'm saying that right now from the dais. It might not be a vote. It might just be we can't open the damn doors. There's your two-week notice. Now that I've said that, with regards to priority filling of the subs, could we look at a situation in which we go remote for secondary and we create, we create a situation in which we can maintain the primary buildings for longer. Yes, I, I do think that would help our sub shortage. Uh, if we don't have the need at the secondary buildings, that of course pulls the existing supply into the needs at the elementary. So to your question, would that help? Yes, it would. Yeah, because yeah, uh, you go back to the numbers of numbers. That's that's the number of subs that we have, regardless of how whether we're... Now, let me add this, though. Even in remote only, we still use subs. Right. We do, yep. So that, that need uh, is there regardless of the mode, but it is, I think, safe to say, generally less when we're remote only than when we're in person. Is that accurate? I would agree, yes. And when we have people who are quarantining because they were exposed, but not because they are positive, they can be teaching remotely, whereas sick teachers cannot be, presumably. So there's, there's a window, there's a small slice of those folks that are available to still teach from home, even if they would otherwise be quarantined and couldn't come teach in the building. And even in isolation, if they're feeling up to it, we don't have any problem with them Not teaching from home. Mm -hmm. You know, because some people are asymptomatic positive. They have no symptoms, but they still test positive. I think what makes in-class, uh, what puts extra pressure on the subs is, let's say a teacher is quarantined, uh, but can still teach from home to her, his or her class that are in person. Well, you still have to have somebody in that room. You have to have a sub in that room to monitor the students. So even in that situation, you're gonna need a sub. It would only be if the teacher is quarantined at, with the class that you wouldn't need a sub, unless they're sick, of course, and they can't teach. Dr. Sinclair, do you have anything on logistics? Well, um, I had one other thought. I appreciate your willingness to speak very directly about um, a very potential 
we have people likely scenario would we have people who have to be able to plan their lives yeah. and if we dance around it because we are all very much trying to deliver quality education to all of our students i think that is absolutely the priority of not only of everyone in this room but everyone participating in our district and we and I'm, I'm not saying that it, anything happens definitively in two weeks and then it's done. But we can see the trajectory with regards to infection rates in our community. We know that impacts the people teaching in this community and our certified, our classified staff. We can't serve lunch if we don't have a nutrition staff available to do so. I mean, if we can't get the kids in the building if we don't have bus drivers, we can't keep the buildings open if we don't have custodial staff to sanitize. I mean, at some point, it falls apart. Sorry, that was depressing. I'm sorry. I'm not yeah, trying to be okay. depressing, but I mean, for our parents who need, they can't wake up one morning and say, yeah. "Oh, they I, went to school." Let me. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. so let me. Along, you know, so let's say we have um, secondary a, a scenario where our secondary staff are remote only because we can't staff the whole building. Something along those lines. Um, what is the possibility of at least bringing in our special needs learners, whether it's our, you know, our students who are failing courses or have an IEP or however that gets defined? Is that something? There, there are students that are going to continue to need in-person services. So even when we were remote only for, uh, for various levels, we still had in-person instruction taking place. And I, I don't know if that you want to add anything to that, either of you. But. No, that, that's accurate. And, and I know that uh, Sherry Demeline and Dr. Hubbard um, have an alternative plan, a potential alter alternative plan to work with families and, and educators as well, um, if that's not a possibility. But in general terms, yes, um, there are going to be learners that need to report um, no matter what. So that would just be for our students with IEPs? Uh, generally speaking, generally speaking. yes. Mr. Stratton, do you have any additional questions as it pertains to logistics? No, not on this subject. Thank you. Thanks. Reverend Guy? No further questions. Thank you. Ms. Borgman? Um, Ms. Ostley, I appreciate how direct you are to our community about the concern and just about get your plan in place today. Right. Um, obviously, not everyone in our Shawnee Mission community is watching us. <laughs> Right no, now. I don't, but I do think that the press is here, and I do think that there are pe people paying attention. My, my question is, is it worth sending out communication to parents now? So that way, I mean, if we're so adamant, if we've yeah. said it from the dais, I mean, should we be sending out communication in English and Spanish and, you know, so parents can prepare today? Yeah. Well, there's communication that will come out as a result of this meeting. It'll be kind of a big picture overview. I think one of the things that uh, we do need to do probably is make them aware, just like we are tonight, with the fact that we the numbers are getting worse. They do need to anticipate that uh, conditions are such that it could cause a change in what mode we go in. But we don't know when that might occur. I think that's where we work really closely with the Department of Health. Now one of the advantages that they have is they're looking at these trend lines. They know when things are going to get to a point that we're going to have to potentially move into remote only instruction. And Elizabeth, I don't want to put you on the spot. You addressed this earlier in your presentation. 
But if you'd like to talk about that some, you can. Because that's, that's they, they're looking not just two weeks down the line, but four, six, eight weeks that, based on the, the data modeling that they have. And that's not perfect either, I know, but you have some ideas. Um, yeah, so look, everybody knows we, we, public health around the country here locally have all been talking about this for a really long time. As we move into fall, as gatherings move inside, as we also go along into flu season, um, there's really no, we always expected case counts to go up, quite frankly. I always expected us to see an increase. I personally did not think this increase would be as dramatic as if you look at our curves, that sort of straight up line, um, and I, I made the comment that I never anticipated our, our incidence rate being at 608. At this point, it does not show any signs of slowing down. Um, and with Thanksgiving, with Christmas, um, quite frankly, unless our community starts deciding to do things dramatically different than they have up until this point, these case counts are only going to continue to increase through the winter months. Um, I, from public health perspective, obviously schools being in session is the most important thing if we can do that safely from a COVID perspective. However, as you've heard, um, and what we're hearing from our schools and our, our school nurses who I did not shout out in my initial talk, but they are doing a tremendous effort to keep all of your children and staff safe and working a lot of hours and also being very stressed out as well. Um, it's not sustainable. Um, and as much as I want to think that we could keep schools in, with the case counts being what they are, I, I think your staffing is just going to get so stressed to the point that it will not be feasible. Um, and so while public health believes that kids can be in school safely from a COVID perspective, we recognize that the reality of that actually being able to occur is probably not there. And I think from a parent perspective, the important thing, like this kind of gets to your, to your question or your point, I think we absolutely can communicate out uh, the messages that you're hearing tonight. And also just say to parents, look, you need to be prepared. Should we have to go, uh, should we have to gear it back, whether that's into hybrid or into remote only, uh, be thinking about what you will, what you're going to do uh, to take care of your child. Should we have to do that? I think that's fair, as these cases are going up. But you know, it's a warning shot across the bow, but without yet a definitive date on on when that might occur, if and when that might occur. But it's a it's a realistic possibility. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. Does that deal. answer it? Yeah. And and I would say we would try. As we've said in the past, we would absolutely try to project 14 days out. Uh, now, it may not always be possible, but that would be our goal. Do you have a follow-up, Jamie? Would oh, you good? Okay, Jessica. I would just put in a little plug from the parent perspective of if I mean I, I feel like there is a locomotive coming for us right now, and it's just a question of exactly when it's going to hit, and if I think it would serve our community and our teachers and our families well to have some sense of what kind of timing we're looking at because it would be so much easier to plan for, okay, maybe we're not coming back from the Thanksgiving holiday and we should be prepared for four to six weeks, whatever the amount is, of making alternative plans. If we think that's a very realistic possibility, which <laughs> seeing this graph and knowing what's happening community-wide and I don't see any scenario where people just start doing better because they feel bad that the numbers look bad. I mean, I think 
these numbers are only gonna keep doing what they're doing. I would ask Elizabeth, knowing that, I mean, this seems to be following like a typical flu-ish pattern, like when does flu season start and stop? Does that give us any indication of when we should expect our COVID numbers to go down? Because they're doing this all over the country. We're not the only county that has had some exponential increase in the last three weeks. You're absolutely right. Um, we are seeing this. So flu season typically goes from September, October to February, March, maybe April in a long year. Um, you know, if you recall back in March when this was emerging in our country, there was a lot of talk about, well, with the summer months, we're going to see our, you know, the cases drop, right? That was sort of a narrative that existed at that time. And we certainly did not see that here um, in this country um, because of behaviors, right? And I think that that's really what we're seeing with this is that so much of COVID is related to our behaviors and what we choose to do um, and taking masks off and socializing. Um, and the other piece that we know is even if your staff do everything perfectly, do not socialize, not, do not do any of that, we also know it fires through families very quickly. Um, we ran some numbers last week and 20% of our cases were from households. Um, and so the problem is if the spouse of your staff member is working or something happens to get exposed and becomes positive, and they can't isolate away, you still have that impact. Um, you know, certainly the vaccine, come, a potential for vaccine is great. Um, I've heard some rough numbers about what our first round of doses is gonna look like for Kansas, and it's not enough. Um, and we know that the priority populations will be likely be healthcare workers and long-term care facility workers and, and residents. So, um, you know, I think that a vaccine will eventually get to us but it may not be in a timely fashion that people would like it to be um, in terms of the number of doses that we would need to immunize our community fully. Um, and the Pfizer vaccine, which, you know, I think that we've had some really excellent news this week in COVID. Um, you know, I, I, I feel you and you don't wanna be depressing. I sort of feel like that is my role all the time when I stand up in front of people now, because um, there's there generally isn't a lot to, especially with our case counts being what they are. But this week we did hear some really great news about the COVID vaccine being 90% effective, which I will be very honest, I never anticipated a number that high. I was thinking if we were at 50 or 60%, we were gonna be doing really well coming out for our first vaccine. Um, but this vaccine in particular has two doses and it has to have ultra cold storage, which is a very big challenge for vaccine distribution. Um, and so, you know, I, I hope, uh, similar to, uh, Michael, I don't have a crystal ball. Mine, mine's really been broken since March, unfortunately, um, as much as I keep trying to get it to work. You know, by the spring, we may start seeing some declines, certainly the warmer weather. I mean, the warmer weather helped um, in that people could be outside. We could dine outside. You know, there was an ability for the community, for, for individuals to have that connection in a slightly safer manner than we can now as we move into winter months. So if I did have a crystal ball, I would say that I would anticipate as we move out of winter and out of the cold months, we will probably see a decline in cases. Um, however, will that be to what level that is? I don't know. Um, but again, so much of this is relying on behaviors. And, you know, unfortunately, I agree in that I'm not sure we're going to see the dramatic change in behaviors among our community members that we really need to see these numbers change trajectory. Yeah, so I, I just wanna just, uh, you know, make sure folks are aware, we're not trying to be vague in where we're at tonight in terms of when might we go remote. I think the answer is 
We're watching those numbers very carefully, working very closely with the health department. We're looking at our internal numbers. And if they continue to get worse, then at some point, it's probably going to force our hand on a decision about if we're going to have to move to remote only. And I don't know whether that's for some levels, you know, secondary or secondary in elementary. I'm not sure. And I don't want to um, get people unsettled. I think this is just part of the conversation that we're going to have to have, and we carefully watch the numbers. We know that uh, we know that secondary students have more risk of transfer than elementary students, but that's those are the kinds of things that we have to just monitor and keep people updated on. So I don't know if that responds any more to your question or comments or not. Yeah, I think it does to some extent. I just think. I feel like we're a ship that's going down, and I want to figure out how we can prioritize what's most important as we go down. And if pulling back at the secondary level sooner rather than later allows us to keep elementary in longer, then that seems like a worthwhile conversation for us to have. I think we've all, I think we've done an incredible job. Our teachers have done an incredible job. I'm so proud that we're seeing so little transmission in our schools, but if we don't have the staffing to operate, I think we have to put first what's first, and for me, at least the health department has made a really good case for why having elementary kids in is of disproportionate benefit and also much lower risk than having secondary kids in. The general conversation in schools tends to go that direction, recognizing that secondary students have some more dependence than what elementary students have. There's some family needs. Uh, taking care of younger children is a big issue. So, um, you know, that's a reasonable way to think about solving the problem if we're at a point where we have to make that kind of decision. Uh, Ms. Goodman. I just quickly, Dr. Fulton, you have, we've given, this board's given you the authority to make those decisions too. It's not like we have to reconvene if you're going to move between modes or anything. I just want to be clear about that. Uh, yes, and I think that's a good foray into this comment. You know, it's, we've been very clear about what would happen if we got into the red gating criteria, which we did. But we didn't have to shut down because of the, uh, so for some of the reasons that Elizabeth talked about earlier and that we've actually shared with the community already. And so uh, I think it's testament to the fact that we're, we're learning and growing through this virus right now. And so that's, uh, but, but yes, in terms of needing to uh, move into remote, certainly have the authority to do that. The game changed a little bit on us and that's why it's probably good to have this conversation tonight recognizing there's other variables, particularly building variables that we may have to look at, staffing, uh, availability, those kinds of things, which we really hadn't talked about, had right. maybe mentioned briefly, but had never gone into any kind of depth about in the past. Right. Thank you. Um, I think I, I would like, I know one of the topics in our community that gets brought up a lot is mental health, and we have a resource here, and I'd like to ask questions related to mental health if everybody was kind of ready to move on away from logistics. Um, because certainly when we talk about remote or hybrid, the mental health issues come up, and um, one of the concerns is, can, oh, sure, go ahead. Do you have a logistics logistic question? question yeah, of course. Go ahead, Mary. Um, in the and I'm not sure if this is a question, who this is a question for, but the county recently allocated more, some of, had been holding on to dollars, or there were more dollars kind of towards the end here that were allocated towards supporting PPEs, testing capacity. Have we seen um, that 
transfer into resources for our classrooms and buildings in terms of masks or hand sanitizers or any of those? I'm going to have Shelby address that that one from an SMSD perspective, and maybe Elizabeth can add to it in terms of what's going on uh, across county. So we have not had the need in Shawnee Mission. We have a plethora of PPE. Um, we have all the testing capacity that we need from the state and the county. Um, however, there is a huge uh, logistical component with the testing, and a lot of that has to do with staffing. Um, and Elizabeth, you might be able to help me out with this a little bit as far as the antigen testing that the state wants us to perform versus the PCR, which is kind of the gold standard. Um, I do not feel that there is a huge benefit to our um, students and staff to do the antigen testing, which the state has available to us, because it still requires a PCR test no matter the result. Um, so it's a two-step process. It gathers fabulous data for the state of Kansas and for the federal government, but it really does nothing for our students and staff. Would you like, like to comment on that? Yeah, yeah um, I'll just piggyback really quickly. So in terms of testing for staff and students, I'm working very closely with all of our school districts. We have implemented a number of different ways where individuals can get tested. Um, we have what we call fast passes. So anybody who is symptomatic, um, staff or t student, they get this card and can drive straight to our Olathe testing clinic without an appointment and get tested there. We have saliva kits um, so people can get tested on site or, for instance, in the car when mom's picking them up. Um, but another piece of funding that we have utilized is, um, is around staffing. So recognizing that the amount of work that your school staff are having to do, your school nurses are having to do to identify contacts when there's a positive um, in a school building, we, um, Johnson County, utilize CARES Act money to hire 20 individuals that we have trained um, and are being placed in the various school districts. I believe Shawnee Mission got four. Um, so we uh, trained them last week and those individuals are in the school buildings yesterday. yesterday. Um, so trying to provide some extra support. So when they do need to be doing testing or additional contact tracing or even data entry, um, they will have some additional support. But unfortunately these are CARES Act money um, and without uh, any kind of congressional Leadership moving forward, uh, that money does run out. We are no longer allowed to spend it after December 30th. So um, there may be, it may be short-lived, unfortunately, if, if Congress does not decide to act. Okay. So from testing, so that was kind of an update on testing. I appreciate that. So if, if, we're, if uh, there's a need for a couple of kids to have a mask or a teacher to have a mask or if they need to replenish the hand sanitizer or soap in their classroom, there's a process to say, hey, I need this and there's adequate supply to provide that. Absolutely. We have cloth masks, kid size masks, adult size masks, surgical masks, and then all of the hand sanitizer would come through operations or custodial. Thank you. Thank you both for that update. Um, mental health. This is also going to be depressing, I'm sure. <laughs> so one of the concerns of our community is how to measure the mental health of our students kind of generally um, because the presumption right now is 
our students when they are in hybrid or remote are suffering the mental health consequences of not being in the building, not socializing with their peers in person. Um, but a lot of it is anecdotal and a lot of it is, you know, n not maybe based off of like actual concrete data. So as the mental health person in the room, could you provide us with what is a good measuring stick for let's say like the general mental health for the various age groups we have in the district? Let's, let's split it up with primary and secondary. Mm -hmm. You know, what do we want to look for in that population of students to say, okay, their mental health is in trouble. Are we looking at like instance of drug use? Are we looking at instance of potentially suicide rates? I know one of the talking points people bring up a lot is suicide rates are up. Can you speak to the to this, like how are we tracking the mental health of, of our students? And then also potentially speak to what we can do to implement mitigating measures to protect mental health, knowing that it's quite likely that we are going to be in situations that involve online learning or hybrid learning for students throughout the course of the coming months. Sure. Yes, um, thank you for having me here this evening. Let me just start with um, maybe what we're seeing at the Mental Health Center in, in terms of some of our trends um, over the last several months and, and even the last few weeks as we've had the increase. Um, I, of course, I want to note that we're just one mental health provider, a large mental health provider in our county, but there are many other mental health providers. So, you know, I can share some trends that, of what we're seeing and then maybe a little bit of more county data and I'll specify w which is which. Um, you know, I, th I think it's important to note that this is a stressful time for kids and adults. Um, and and I, I think no matter whether you're at home or at school, there's gonna be some degree of stress in this particular time. That's an increase of, of normal time if um, whatever that whatever that might look like sometime in the future um, and so I do think you have to think about not just what the kid is feeling but what what the stresses of the parent um, maybe that parent's a teacher what's the stress of that teacher so all those things go into play so it is very hard to just slice that pie and say you know what is happening with this one kid um, you guys all know as educators and, and board members that kids are very different, families are very different, and so it can be very difficult to find you know, that measuring stick that, that you mentioned, but I'll try to move into that a little bit more. So what we are, what we are seeing is certainly an increase in um, mental health contacts. They're much more significant on the adult side, so when I consider a contact, that's um, you know any kind of interaction that we're having with someone who's either an, a current client or in crisis. So for our clients who are adults, um, if I were just to compare kind of those weekly rates um, from this time last year, we're at about 20% higher for adults, about 10% higher for kids. Um, for crisis services, meaning people like calling our crisis line, and that sort of thing, um, we're, we're up at like 35%. Those are often calls like, you know, I, I'm not sure if I can go to work today, I just need somebody to talk to briefly. It, those kind of calls that might take five or 10 minutes anywhere all the way to the spectrum of, you know, I, I'm feeling like harming myself. Um, and so that's definitely been the spike that we're seeing is just the coping, the stress, you know, it's getting to folks and, um, 
you know, but thankfully we're, uh, we're able to talk through those conversations. It doesn't mean that someone's reached a level of having a, a mental health condition, so to speak, um, but they need some, some help um, getting through that moment or figuring out what they need to do or, or can do to cope with the situation as it is um, for them in particular. So for, let me speak to a little bit to death by suicide. Um, that's definitely something that uh, we've gotten a lot of questions about uh, over time. I, I, I'm grateful to say that the, the death by suicide rate in Johnson County um, has not increased. Uh, we, we did see a, a bit of a spike at one point. It's, it's leveled out, the, the, the rate of death by suicide um, is the same as it was a year ago. So that, that is good news. Um, certainly we are concerned, of course, about what's the trajectory uh, the longer we go um, in the midst of a pandemic um, and what you know, the degrees of stress that um, can overwhelm kids and, and adults over a period of time. And that can be anything from you know, school to economic distress to uh, illness, of course, or fear of illness and all those things do come to play. Um, in terms to, to speak to, you know, is it, is it worse for a kid to be at home than to be at school? There's just not a good, there's not a good straight answer for that. Um, you, you've heard my director speak to this in the past and, and I wouldn't, mental health should not be a reason to not follow public health guidance. Um, it's just one piece of the picture, and, and there are things that um, we all can do to help mitigate the mental health risks. Um, so so I, I don't think it's my place to say you should or you shouldn't. You've, you've all got a, a tremendous amount of pressure figuring out all those decision points, and um, I, I understand we're, we're seeing the same kind of trends in our staffing at the mental health center in a much smaller organization of just trying to kind of stay afloat. Um, and having enough people to, to, to come to work and do um, their job. So those are very difficult decisions. One thing I'll say is, you know, what we do know is kids um, generally are incredibly resilient. Um, and if, if I can find a silver lining to the possibility of remote, it's that kids have done it before. And... Um, so they know what it's maybe going to be like. Um, in, in that sense, they've already kind of lived through it, so to speak, experienced it. It might, it might for some kids, be less distressing. If it was a really difficult thing for some kids, it, it might be more distressing. Uh, hopefully, by now, you might already have an idea of which kind of bucket those kids might fall in. You know, So maybe a kid who, who did remote before, who really struggled, you can anticipate um, or maybe plan for a little differently that child needing to go back into remote. Whereas, you know, you might have other kids, um, I'll think of a coworker of mine who has a, a son who um, loved remote and didn't want to go back to school so much. And when he did, it was okay. But um, in every kid is, is different and it's not, um, it's not definitely not a one size fits all. So, you know, I think my message would be, um, you know, to remember it's a little bit different than the last time. Um, I do think, too, if, if you're able to plan in advance, that can reduce some stress uh, for both kids and 
parents, of course, just to know what's coming. Um, you may not be able to say, hey, we're going to stop on this date and come back at this date. Um, I'd like to think it's likely that the period of time that schools might have to go remote would be less than it was the first time around, um, hopefully. And, and so, you know, if that message can be, look, we've we've been down this road and we got through it and um, we're going to get through it the next time and we've learned some things along the way and, you know, help us help us help you by, you know, continuing. I'm sure you're getting lots of feedback from parents as, as best you can from staff about how to, to make that work. Um, and speaking to kind of that measuring stick, and, and then I'll just pause for a minute for more specific questions, but um, I think you really have to take that on an individual basis. So uh, teachers, as best they can, know the kids, the counselors, the nurses, all the staff. Um, recognizing when kids uh, seem to be having more stress, I think, are things that are probably pretty typical things that you guys are already doing. So is there a behavior change? Is there a change in um, attendance that's not related to sickness? Um, is there a change in engagement with school or teachers? Uh, maybe a kid who would typically participate who's uh, become more isolated. Um, and of course those things might be a, a little bit more challenging to, to pay attention to um, remotely. Um, but again, you've, you've, you've done it already and have some experience with that, so hopefully that um, can help. And, you know, uh, um, I think providing reinsurance to the kids and the, and the parents too that, you know, we can get, we can get through this um, and finding those ways to, to listen um, when the time allows let kids talk about how they're feeling and what this is like for them and help them find some of the positives too, you know, whether that's, um, gosh, I, I have two teenagers and it's a daily battle of can I do this and can I do that and it's exhausting uh, for all of us, and, and, but is there, is there a brighter side? Um, what, what was okay about your day-to-day -day at home? Um, for my 13-year-old, it's I chewed gum today and nobody noticed because my mask was on. You know, it's like, um, okay, I'll, I'll take it. It's not what I would prefer, but, you know, those kind of, of things just to help help us get through um, this really difficult time. So I'll stop there, and I, I hope I answered um, most of your questions and um, fire away at more if you'd like. I appreciate it. I'll, I'll run down the line with folks for mental health questions. Um, Dr. Sinclair? Uh, actually, you answered my questions in your presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Stratton? No questions. Thank you. Thank you. Reverend Guy? Um, we're hearing from teachers that they are feeling uh, a lot of heightened anxiety, um, especially now that we are in the red mm -hmm. zone. Um, teachers that had chosen to teach in person um, didn't think that they were going to be teaching in person while we were in the red zone. And so that uncertainty and that um, heightened sense of anxiety and fear that we're all feeling, but I think they're um, feeling it magnified um, because they are in close contact with, with children and we're heading into the holiday season and they know some of those kids are going to be spending Thanksgiving celebrations with families and and so I think all of that is feeding into the anxiety um, 
of our teachers, which I think is going to make our sub situation even worse because they're going to need mental health days and they're just going to need um, yeah, time to, to deal with their own mental health issues. So, um, so help us understand the impact of that, not only on the teachers themselves, but, but for the students um, to, to be in the presence of an anxious teacher all day. How does that affect the students? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very valid point. Um, I, I think for any of us who have, you know, chronic stress um, or acute stress, you know, the, these last two, three weeks um, have been kind of unreal in some respects, like who thought we would be where we are at. Um, And so it does sort of increase exponentially. I think a lot depends on how that teacher is is handling that stress. So, um, and and we all, some of us do better than others. If if you have a teacher who's not sleeping well um, night after night, if you um, have a teacher who is, is, is so fearful, understandably, about um, the distance between them and a student or, you know, those kinds of things, um, it's, it's going to wear on them. And, you know, I think sometimes just with any of us, that can come out in how we express ourselves. You know, maybe we're a little short-tempered or um, maybe our patience is just a little bit different than it might be. And, and that's all very understandable. So, uh, I do think those are important things to consider. I, I'm sure that you're finding ways to support teachers as best you can, and at the same time, um, you know, there's only so much that each of us can do. You know, we we at the Mill Health Center are just constantly reminding staff and ourselves, you know, can, remember what you can control, and. Um, Try to manage uh, your own level of stress in ways that you can, and um, you know make those decisions for yourself and your family on, on a daily basis. So, yeah, th- those are those are very good points and, and very challenging. Ms. Borman, thank you, Ms. Rome, for being here. We're, we're grateful. Um, Dr. Fulton, my, I guess my first question might be more for you. I, I don't know how much money we have left with CARES Act funding. Um, but I know there is a deadline to spend it. Um, and I don't know if it's worth, you know, considering setting aside some of that money for mental health for teachers as well as students. Um, you know, because it is, I mean, obviously we get these emails, multiple emails every day from teachers that are just at their brink. We get t- uh, emails from parents who are, you know, very concerned about their child's mental health going to remote. And so um, if there's any way that we could perhaps maybe take a look at some of that CARES Act to devote some of it for mental health resources for kids and teachers, I think that might be money well spent. Um, I know there's lots of apps available, so it wouldn't necessarily have to be, let's find 25 therapists and (laughs) sit them in the gymnasium, but um, you know, just some creative ways perhaps that we could address some mental health. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Would that be a possibility or? Well, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the CARES funds, not all of it, but a lot of them have already been allocated. I'd be happy to give you an update on that uh, perhaps at the next board meeting as part of our financial report. But I think you're hitting uh, an important point, and that is what kind of services and supports do we have available to staff? And I think uh, Dr. Schumacher works with this, and he can probably provide it. You know, thirty thousand foot view of the of what kind of supports we have in place. Yeah. 
Right. And, and so we are hearing uh, from staff members um, expressing concerns around anxiety, mental health, um, and I think it's a valid point that all employees, education, outside of education, have a right to take a mental health day, I mean, to, to use their leave. And so um, that does continue to put stress on our subs. Um, but, but to your specific question, we do have an EAP, uh, an employee assistance program through our benefits office. Um, it's the third party vendor is New Directions. Um, and so we do have that on our website. We do have several staff members access that. And so our, excuse me, our principals know that um, noted direct staff members there, our benefits office does as well. Um, so that's the immediate response that we can provide. Uh, in addition, I think I mentioned this uh, with FMLA, that many folks are applying for FMLA for anxiety-related reasons. Um, and then additionally, ADA accommodations uh, for that as well. And so those are all pieces that our department works with individual staff members on. Um, but for that immediate response, it would be our EAP, that Employee Assistance Program. Has that been, um, just based on the volume of emails we're getting from teachers, I mean, I don't know, is it worth sending out to all of our teachers once again, just as a friendly reminder, hey, the service is available? I mean, you know better than I do, sure. but just based on the volume of, of emails we get from our, our staff. Totally agree. Yep, I agree. Um, so we do put out a Wellness Wednesday email. Um, if staff are anything like us, they're buried in emails. I'm not sure, you know, unless you're looking for that and you want to read through all that. But I, there, I think it is something that maybe we explore. Yeah, well. I think it's also important for staff to reach out directly to, uh, they could, Mike, who would they directly reach out to if they feel like they need support? Uh, Jennifer Lumley in our office yeah. um, as our benefits coordinator. Yeah, we have, we have confidential conversations that can and do occur. That, that can support them. They can certainly reach out to their their supervisor for support. But you know, reach out to HR if they have specific concerns. And we certainly do. Uh, you know, those, those weekly uh, emails that go out on wellness help, and that's something that we're going to pay close attention to in terms of additional communications that may need to go out to staff to provide support. But I think it is an ongoing problem. Even though you communicate uh, how you access some of those supports. Oftentimes, uh, as a staff member, you may not, I mean, you got a lot going on. You may not necessarily pay attention to that, and you may not be always aware of all the resources that you have available at your fingertips, and we're probably all that way to some extent. So, yeah, we could talk about that. You know, I can add to that just a little bit in terms of the, some of the CARES money that's in the community um, that could be accessible to families as well, or maybe even staff that you have that are, not benefit eligible for EAP. Um, the county did use uh, a chunk of money that, that went out to community mental health providers to provide services for people who may not be able to afford it. And then internally, if, if uh, someone comes to us um, that might prefer a, a provi provider in the community or depending on a couple little factors, maybe um, maybe they're not a super high need but would like to get into some services elsewhere, we have um, five contracted agencies that um, we are utilizing and we use our CARES money to pay that provider to provide this service. And part of it's just to get get people access right away so that we don't have waiting lists and those kinds of things. So um, I, can, and I can make sure that I get that information to your HR folks so that um, you guys can get that out for staff, but um, then you know, for the community as well. There, there is a lot of opportunity right now. That, you know, as Elizabeth said, and we've said, it's 
not for a lot longer unless there's an extension and, and that's kind of concerning but um, uh, there, there is availability out there right now and um, and we're, we're lucky in Johnson County we have a lot of really good mental health providers um, in the in the private world and public sector that um, uh, want to help and I'm guessing that money can be for adolescents as well as adults yes um, so this is something that we hear and we've heard early on just the mental health concerns we had a listening session several months ago and that was a theme time and time again was just the mental health of their their students so if parents have you know um, mental health concerns for their child call Johnson County Mental Absolutely. Health Department. Absolutely yes they, they can call us anytime we have 24 7 uh, clinicians therapists answering our line. We Do can you ask. want to go ahead and give the number right now? Yeah it's 913-268 0156. So that can be a crisis type call or that can just be a, hey, I think m myself or someone I know needs services, what do I do? That's great, thank you. Ms. Mm -hmm. Uh No questions, I just wanna say thank you and I appreciated especially your thoughts on how we can structure our communications to families so that they reduce anxiety and help build resilience instead of it's very easy to feel doom and gloom. I think if there's things we can do as a district to help convey some calm and uh, such to our family through our communities, uh, through our communications, I think that's valuable for us to do. So I appreciate that. It's, it's I know it's easier said than done at times, but I think if we each kind of help remind each other of um, where we can find some small wins along the way, that's good. Ms. Goodburn. I just want to thank you for being here and thank you for providing the statistics and the information that you gave us. Appreciate it. Um, are there any further mental health questions that anybody thought of while we were going around the line? Okay, I'm not hearing any. And so I think we can move into kind of the second portion of the discussion tonight with JCDHE. Um, and in my mind, I've kind of formulated this as a question regarding where is the line? what is the line we're watching, both with regards to academics and athletics and activities. Um, because for our community, they, you know, what was initially communicated to them in the summer with regards to where the line was, moved um, in part due to new data. Um, other districts opened up before we did and got to see what was happening in those buildings, um, learning whether or not mitigation factors were working. But I think when it was initially proposed in the summer, the gating criteria that came from the county and there was a black zone, um, and this was gating criteria for schools. I mean, this was presented as this is your gating criteria for whether or not school is gonna be in session. And it was initially proposed, well, if there's a black, if you go into the black, then you're done, that's your end game. And then the new gating criteria didn't have a black, but it was the red zone. And if you hit you know, these spots in the red zone, then school is not in session. And we did a really good job of communicating to the community that this was for whether or not your buildings are gonna be open. <laughs> so then last week, when it moved into the zone that says schools should not be open, I think everyone, a lot of people were psychologically ready for that to mean, okay, this is, I made it to the end of this finish line, this is where we're at, we're, we're done. And, and instead, we, the 
information that came from the county was, this is now a gating criteria for the community because the community spread is so bad that we are now in the red as a community, but schools are still able to operate. And I think that that, unfortunately, I mean, even from my perspective, that was very difficult. How can we be in the red when we've been told repeatedly, here is the zone where it's no longer safe. We've reached a rate of communicable spread in the community to where even if mitigating factors are at place, it's no longer safe to be present in the building. At least that's how it was initially presented. But then to communicate, no, never mind, it's okay. So where's the line? And because based off of our conversations that we're hearing this evening, it sounds to me like we're going to hit this line with staffing faster than we're going to hit this line with whatever the rate is that's too dangerous to be open. But I would still like to know, is there a part, whether and is it different for secondary and primary? Where is the percentage rate where you say, there's just no way it's in the buildings. There's just no way it's in the buildings. And, and even if you can staff, even if some sort of substitute manna falls down upon us and we're able to operate our building, are you guys going to come and say to us, even if you could, you shouldn't be open? And, and whether or not it's a mandate, whether or not it's in gating criteria, whether or not it's an email, you know, however it gets to us that says, we've entered a danger zone, we can't continue like this, and, and, and where is it? And is it impacted by the fact that we don't have testing available? Is it impacted by the fact that the vaccine isn't available till April? Is it impacted by the fact that we're like the top fourth state in the nation for active increase right now? Is it impacted by the fact that the IHM, what is it that the Independent Health Metrics Institute is saying we're going to have another 200,000 deaths in the country before January? Um, is it impacted by the fact that the hospitals reached out today and said, we only have 22 ICU beds that are staffable in the Kansas City metro area and west of us, there are no ICU beds. There are no ICU beds. So even what our community does no longer impacts our ability to access healthcare because we're gonna have folks in communities that aren't masking who will be here in those beds. So our numbers with our, what is it, 681? Per 100,000? 608. 608? Yep. So with those 608, we know we're going to have hospitalizations. We don't know how many, but we know right now, today, we have hospitalizations with those folks. And we know right now, today, we have people across the state of Kansas that are counting on the hospital beds here in Johnson County that are not going to be available. And we know the county commissioners are talking about erecting a hospital tent, a commissioner raised that at a meeting last week, the possibility that we might have to have a hospital tent. I mean, so what, where do we get to a point where all of these other factors? Could I put in, I mean, I think the yeah. question to me, and this is something I've turned over again and again in my own head, and because um, I was like the biggest fan of having gating criteria. <laughs> I was like fan number one, and I, have seen what you've seen, that I think these gating criteria were very understandably interpreted, interpreted by our community as sort of a like signed blood promise that this is what we're going to do. And I understand why that interpretation was out there. 
But as I've reflected on it, so put this in like pandemic lessons learned for the next time we're on a school board and there's a massive global pandemic that we have to navigate through, I think we didn't leave enough room for the fact that our understanding of COVID at the end of July and the fact that community spread was gonna be the one and only most important metric for what happens with our instructional model, we didn't leave enough room for the fact that we would also wanna know really carefully what's actually happening inside schools. Cause I well, no, that's actually not where I was going with this. I, I really wanna know where the line is. I mean, I really wanna know where is the line where, if, if, and if it doesn't exist, I wanna know. Maybe that's the question, is there a line? Is there a line, and if there's a line, where is it at? Because we were at 14.3% we're at positivity rating under the new percentage criteria, and we're at like 20% under the old one. I'm going to give very unpopular statements tonight. <laughs> Be very upfront. That's, that's fine, I, but I yep. just want, just the, let us know what they are, yeah. There is no line. I think that, let me just comment on the black to red thing. That was really just to align with other colors. It had nothing to do with the black thing. Uh, being black versus red, orange, yellow. Um, because we're not seeing community, or we're not seeing transmission in schools, but clearly we're seeing insane amount of transmission in our community. It does not, at this moment, make sense to ask the school districts to go to remote if there are not other asks of our community. Um, because again, if really our goal in asking schools to go to remote is to reduce the transmission, which was part of this, right? Like there's a couple of pieces in, in how schools interplay in this. One is, can kids learn safely without contracting COVID? And we've pretty much shown that they can, even at, so far, even at really high rates of community transmission. But if we ask you to go to remote, are we doing that to protect the kids and the staff from contracting COVID? And I, that's not the answer because we're not seeing that. Or are we doing it to reduce community transmission so that we can prevent the overloading of our healthcare system? Well, according to our data, because these kids and staff members aren't really contracting it in schools. So why move us into the red? If the community gating criteria <clears throat> is there, then why not say to the community, the community's in the red, but here this school gating criteria that we created to operate our buildings is actually, because of mitigating factors, not in the red. And I think that is where this whole, it's like we're, the projection is two very different realities. Like we're in the red, woo, danger. But also you're totally fine to continue to operate. I mean, that's, I think that's caused a significant amount of concern because people, people on very opposite ends of the spectrum with this in the community are emailing us saying, follow Johnson County, <laughs> follow Johnson County's recommendations, you're in the red, you should be closed, or follow Johnson County's recommendations, they're saying you should, you should be open, you should be open. And it's very difficult <laughs> yep. to respond to that because either way we're wrong. Welcome to pu public health. Right, no, I understand, but this, I mean, from this perspective, I can't say that back to them because I'm not yeah. the epidemiologist. So I can't say, you know, like, I need you guys to be able to provide that clarifying information to folks. And if we need a separate gating criteria for the community to tell the community, okay, now it's time, you don't get to go to bars anymore, you don't get to go to restaurants anymore, you don't get to do this. I understand that the county is not taking those steps to do that. But to say that the community has now entered a zone where it's no longer, it is actually probably safer to be in one of our buildings at this point.
than it is to be somewhere else because we've implemented the measures that we were told we needed to implement because Shelby told us to do it. Everybody listens to Shelby, including me. <laughs> um, you're not wrong. You're, you're absolutely right. I think, um, again, to uh, Ms. Henry's point, we continue to learn a lot, um, both about the science, about, quite frankly, public health communication, um, about what each of these pieces means. Um, I think that you're right. I think that this red zone is a community color. It is a community zone. However, to your point, at this moment in time, we are not, we're not going to, <clears throat> I'm trying to choose my words very carefully right now, I'm sorry. Um, at this time, there does not appear to be um, steps forward in instituting other mitigation efforts community-wide, shutting down the bars, reducing uh, gathering sizes, those various pieces. So I agree. I, I, I don't disagree at all with you that our community, our community is now in black. It is, it, the COVID exit strategy had a color that was called burnt red, or bruised red is what it was called. And I feel very much that we are in the bruised red zone here. <laughs> like, rates are so high that yes, everybody should be staying at home, not being out with other people who are not in their homes. And if you are, to mask and distance. However, we did not do that in the first place, partially because there wasn't an appetite from our community, so it appeared, to have these gating criteria where it really did trigger public health mitigation efforts. If you are in the orange, then this is the policy decision that is made for the community. If we're in red, this is the policy decision. That isn't what sometimes we have the ability to do, um, given current circumstances. So you're right that our community is red, bruised red. Our school districts are still doing exceptionally well. And I think where this frustration comes in, and I think it would also exist if we had community gating criteria, is if you're, you know, the fact that we changed colors but we did not change recommendations, right? Like that is the point of gating criteria and I get it. I, I, I'm an epi, I, I like numbers and I like nice little buckets to put numbers in. Like that is what I do, I, I count. Um, so if you're gonna move into a zone but you're not gonna actually change the recommendation, it, it's, it's a challenge. And so I don't even know quite frankly if I'm making sense at this point because it's just a very complicated situation that is so fraught with politics, community perception, community willingness to participate in that. Um, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I don't know that I, I'm... It's okay. If, I, if, I'm I'm gonna, I, if I may add, yeah. um, you know, when we, when we look at the efforts that are being made in the county to mitigate the spread of COVID-19, one thing is clear. The school districts have taken the county's recommendations to heart. We've implemented the, the mitigation strategies, uh, even though everybody's using somewhat different gating criteria. If, if all public entities and private entities took to heart the same kind of due diligence, we would not have the numbers that we have. But the numbers are soaring. And we can only do so much as a school district to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. We can control what we can within our environment. We cannot control 
the rest of the world. And I, uh, I'm going to say this a little bit in defense here, or maybe a lot in defense of the health department. They provided us with really good guidance. They've worked collaboratively with us through what has been a really difficult and ever-emerging, uh, evolving situation. Adjusting as we go, as new information becomes available, which is what you're supposed to do. That's part of what science teaches you, right? So uh, that's been, I think, the greatest frustration that, that I've had as a superintendent. I think I can probably speak for most of the superintendents, probably all the superintendents. Uh, it's fair to say that you know, at some point, everyone's got to step up. We know what we have to do. We just need to do it. And we're not. And here we are. And as a result, we're, we're wondering, are we going to be able to keep schools in in, keep, keep kids in the classroom uh, with live instruction or not. So anyway, I'm no, it's not. I mean, it is. I'm going to let Dr. Sinclair go next. I um, I appreciate I appreciate your response. Um, I think now we turn to watching staffing issues and, but um, Dr. Sinclair. Um, so I'm going to circle back to the conversation that. Um, uh, that I think we, um, that Jamie was kind of uh, getting us to is in absence of a, of a line from the county and school districts have been told by the CDC, by departments of health, you know, at the state and local level, follow the, the guidance and the recommendation from the county health department. So in absence of a line, is that where we go to the attendance piece of the, the metric? If our schools have 10% absences, that becomes our, our next metric of, or essentially our line, at least at the school level or classroom level? Yeah, with respect to the line, and, and Shelby, please feel free to jump in. Um, that is precisely why we wanted to give you that information tonight. It didn't give you a hard line, but it gave you the variables that we're looking at. Student attendance, particularly if that attendance is related to uh, communicable disease, COVID-19 slash flu, flu-like symptoms, uh, staff, the ability of staff. So there are some, uh, there are some um, variables that we, like those that we can look at that enable us to make a judgment that gets close to this idea of what does the line look like, whether that's at the classroom level, the building level, or even potentially the district level. Um, but that's, it, it's a lot easier if you hit 15% and, and you're in red and you close down school, which is what we've been sharing with our community, as you've shared, hence the confusion, because we hit it and we didn't close down schools. But there are reasons for that. And I would add that what I have um, encouraged our team to look at is as we approach that 10% mark, whether it be in a classroom, in a building, um, that at that point we begin working with the county health department to determine what needs to happen. Do, you know, I think Elizabeth has been here before and we've given you scenarios where there's been two kids in a classroom, but both of the, this one was due to an exposure from his dad. This one was due to an exposure from a soccer team. 
They're not interrelated at all. But if we get a class where, you know, we have a teacher who is unmasked, or not a teacher, a student who is unmasked because they don't have the ability to mask, or maybe multiple students who don't have the ability to mask, um, that's going to, you know, if we get positive cases in there, that's going to get us to 10% real quick in that classroom, right? So we need to look at that. Do we need to close a whole school down if, you know, say the school has 100 in-person learners and we've got 10 in a classroom out? I don't think that makes sense to close the whole school. And I think the county would agree that it only makes sense to close that classroom. But we need the freedom to investigate these cases with the county to make these um, kind of contact tracing determinations. Yeah, if I can add, and I want to really put a, uh, kudos to Shelby Elizabeth, the entire team of nurses and, and uh, at the health department who are working uh, hand in glove <laughs> on contact tracing and, and being just as diligent as they can to get that contact, contact tracing done quickly so we don't end up with a building widespread. And, uh, you know, we may run into cases where we do have to close buildings. But so far, it's really been about uh, quarantining classrooms when that's been good. I mean, it's better to quarantine a classroom versus having to go remote with the entire building for 14 days. Um, all right, do you have a follow-up? Are you good? Um, I was just going to ask the... the I believe the health systems, the hospital systems requested a meeting with the county health department recently. Um, and did that meeting generate any key takeaways that you can share that we haven't touched on tonight? No, um, so the county leadership and my director, as well as Dr. Jacobson, who runs our Johnson County Med Act, um, meets fairly regularly with the county, the hospital leadership, and a lot of that was in preparation for what was going to be said last Friday, um, what, which was shared with the um, community as well as electeds in the media. So, okay. Mr. Stratton, thank you. Uh, in Elizabeth's presentation, when she mentioned that there's a, a relatively low transmission and very few cases within the schools that there's data on. My question is, has the county or has our school district differentiated what uh, experiences or have or tracing there's been between hybrid and in-person? Uh, part of our presentation that we saw, there was a chart that differentiated between the pre-K to 6 and then the 7 to 12, and it looked like different numbers of groups were isolating or quarantining out of those. So my question is, 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 it, is remote versus, I'm sorry, is hybrid versus in-person showing a difference in uh, cases. You know, Elizabeth, do you want to handle that one? Because that's sure. something that we, we talk about as a, as a group almost weekly. Absolutely. So again, really what this comes down to in terms of um, the quarantines, the number of people quarantined are going to, it's what you're looking at are the number of individuals that person was around who were unmasked. Um, and so what we're seeing sometimes is particularly in elementary schools where they are in full person, um, that distancing is not able to be done as well. 
um, because there are just more kids in a single classroom. And so what I've seen is additional kids in that kid in the student's cohort, for instance, being excluded. Um, whereas if they were in hybrid, you maybe wouldn't have to exclude that many students. We wouldn't have to re recommend quarantine for that many students. Um, but as for the number of infections or the number of isolations, at this point, I don't believe that we have really seen um, any significant differences in how many cases we have, how many individuals we have who are positive for COVID if they are in a hybrid mode versus a, um, a full in-person mode, again, because so much of this is just community-based. All right, thank you. Thank you, Brad. Brad Guy. Uh, I'm trying to figure out where to start. <laughs> so I know that there are some universities who decided at the beginning of their school year that the students would not be on campus between Thanksgiving and January for the reason I just spoke about previously because they knew that students going home for Thanksgiving were gonna be exposed to all their family members and then to come back on campus and re-expose everybody and then same thing at Christmas. Um, and so I'm, I'm going through that in my head too because we're gonna have that same issue. And as you've been saying, that's where the, this exponential growth is happening. It's in these small family gatherings. And so I feel like um, uh, using the ship metaphor again that Ms. Hembry used, I, I feel like we're heading into a perfect storm. And I feel like our rates are going up. We've got these two holidays coming up that are very family-centered, <laughs> that, um, that people are probably not going to use their best behavior um, at. We've got a staffing shortage. Um, and we've got the colder weather. So even the things we were able to do outside a little bit those options are going away for us as well. Um, and so I'm just wondering, it occurred to me today that I haven't heard anybody say the term flattening the curve since April or May. Nobody's talking <laughs> about flattening the curve, and yet the curve is higher than it's ever been. It's not even curving yet. <laughs> it's just going up. And so um, I guess I don't even know what my question is other than, I, to me, this feels like a sense of urgency more than we've experienced. I listen to the um, KU Med doctors do their update, and usually Dr. Seitz and, and Dr. Hawkinson are you know, pretty calm, and even when they're given the numbers of how many COVID cases, and they're not anymore. They're saying, we've never seen numbers like this. And um, so I guess, I guess I'm just thinking of our district, and maybe our district moving to remote only through the holiday season isn't gonna make a difference on the Johnson County COVID cases, but it might make a difference in the lives of our students and our families and our teachers. And so, uh, if you had a crystal ball, I mean, <laughs> is that, I mean, am I really seeing this right? Is this really, are we moving into something that could be even more fraught than what we're experiencing right now because of this holiday season coming up. You're absolutely correct. Um, at no point in the pandemic, quite frankly, do I think it's as important that we all start doing all the things that we know we're supposed to be doing as it is in this very moment, early as it was two weeks ago when we started seeing that increase. Um, I, I agree, I have been 
incredibly concerned as I've seen these numbers increase, as I've heard from our hospital partners, um, you know, as I've heard the stress in the school nurses' voices when I talk to them just about the burden that they are experiencing, um, and as I talk to parents who are upset and are angry and are scared as well, right? Everybody in our community is experiencing heightened levels of anxiety and stress for all of these reasons across the board. Um, COVID is one of those that adds to it, as uh, Susan pointed out. And as we move forward, it's going to get darker, um, unlike we have seen thus far, quite frankly. And so I don't think you're incorrect in those conclusions. Okay. I wish you could have cheered me up. But yeah, again. That's what we need uh, no, to know. Nobody ever invites me to cheer them up anymore, I'm afraid. So. <laughs> don't get invited to a lot of, well. No. Well, they know no, I wouldn't go anyway. <laughs> So, building off of Miss Ousley's point, um, and by the way, can you tell she just, she's an attorney? <laughs> I feel it over here. <laughs> um, so, I appreciated when JCDHE was willing to sort of revisit the way it calculated percent positives and, um, and the incidence rate being, you know, more important than the percent positive. And I believe you went more towards the Johns Hopkins model um, based on rather than what we were doing, kind of, which we were doing kind of on an island. Is that kind of... You, for thereabouts. Enough. Ish. Enough for the ish. conversation. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So, per Ms. Ousley's point, would JCDHE, I guess, be willing to sort of reword what each sort of column and color means because the community thinks that the district and the JCDHE is moving the goalpost because it is clearly defined in neat little buckets, as you referred to earlier. So just to help kind of, I mean, I always, I'm a big Brene Brown fan, and she always says, clear is kind, right? So could we get, could JCDHE get a little bit more clear to help really you and us <laughs> out so the community understands what you know a school gating criteria is yeah as i as i said i don't think you're incorrect in that it certainly can be clear um you know again things that we've learned as we've gone through this um this school absenteeism which is one of the things that we have put under our modifying variables for things that can allow school districts to make more independent choices about what mode they're in if they're able to meet these other criteria i think what we found um is that in Johnson County, we have six different school districts who are very, very different in um, their size, in their makeup, in their location, in the density of kids in schools. Um, and so that certainly does, has made it difficult. Um, but I, I think you're right. I think we could be clearer. Um, and I, unfortunately, because there is no set point where we say at this point is when everybody must go remote. I mean, I think, and the problem is it's hard to put it in neat little buckets. And so yeah. to then convey that on a chart um, is very challenging. But I, I agree that the lessons that we've learned over the past month or really the last few weeks as we've seen our case counts increase, as we've talked to our school partners, as we've watched the data in our schools, um, we continue to learn lessons every day about this disease, about how we can control it or not control it, um, and how we should be working to um, reduce the, the transmission. So I think you're absolutely right. Thank you. And 
I really do appreciate your willingness to be flexible and to work with us. And even just being here to have this dialogue is, is so valuable for us in the community. So thank you for your willingness to evolve and change and grow. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, I have a question for both, I think, Shelby and Elizabeth. I, I have heard sort of anecdotally that we are now having so many cases within the schools and within the county that contact tracing are having a difficult time keeping up with it. And I know, Shelby, you mentioned it as a three-legged stool. When I think of safe opening principles that we want to have in place to be able to safely operate schools, contact tracing stands out as a big one. So I think my question is kind of, are we able to keep up with this in terms of contact tracing? You're absolutely correct that that is a huge piece. Um, when we talk about our ability to mitigate the transmission of COVID, we really only have a few things at our disposal. We have masking, we have distancing, and then we have testing and contact tracing. Um, I will say this dramatic increase in cases took us all a bit by surprise. Um, and we are, our capacity is not at the point at which we would like it. Um, we had hired a total of, it's about the equivalent of 30 full-time case investigators. Um, and so those are the individuals who are calling everybody who's positive, interviewing them about their symptoms, their health history, um, and identifying where they were when they could have been exposed as well as who they may have exposed while they were infected. Um, and then we take those lists of contacts and we hand them over to our contact tracers of whom we have about the equivalent of 15 contact tracers who call all the contacts. Um, since our explosion in cases, um, we have requested our other staff in our department. So pre, before we were able to get our full-time dedicated case investigators on, we were relying very heavily on our DHE staff, people doing air quality and childcare licensing and you know, chronic disease prevention. And so we have pulled them back in. We have opened up overtime to all of our full-time staff. Um, so county government is closed tomorrow. Our case investigators are able to work as well during that time. Um, but we are not keeping up well. We're not keeping up nearly well enough. Um, and so I think that that will impact. And that is probably my biggest concern about the ability of schools to continue functioning is our ability to keep up with that case investigation and contact tracing. Um, what we have done is we've prioritized kids, particularly those between 10 and 18, to get case investigations performed because we recognize that those are the individuals um, who are going to be out having more social gatherings, club sports, part-time jobs, and are at a greater risk of bringing it into the school. Um, but you know, one of the conversations that you've heard nationally is about prioritizing protecting the vulnerable po populations. Um, the problem is, is that when you have a list of 400 individuals that come in your door on every morning, um, we don't know who those high-risk individuals are. So I can't look at a list and say, oh, these 50 people are all parents of school-aged children, so I'm going to call them and make sure we know, and then we're going to be able to reach out to the school. Um, you don't know who these people are and what their stories are and where they exist in our community and in our society and what risks they pose to other individuals until you call them and have that conversation. Um, and so we are doing our best to keep up. We have reduced um, the number of questions we ask, and we've gone through this iteration a couple of times where the CDC form is very lengthy. It's got a lot of questions on it. Um, we're not asking all the questions anymore. We're not probably going to ask you about your symptoms, but we're going to ask you when your symptoms started, and we're going to ask you who you were around when you were infectious. Um, and so that's to reduce the amount of time at which our investigators are on the phone with those individuals. Um, again, we've pulled in extra staff to try and keep up. We're looking to do other 
um, strategies to make sure that people are informed and educated because that's a big piece of what our investigators do or we educate people on saying what isolation is, what does that mean, how long is it, um, what about the contacts and quarantining of the contacts. Um, so we're looking for other strategies to be able to streamline that communication. I think what I would say, um, if, I can, if I can really send a message to the parents, the, the community members who are watching this, most people know that they're positive because their physician will call them, right? So everybody should know that they're positive. If you are positive, and you have children, for instance, in the school district, keep them home. Sometimes we're not gonna be able to make that connection with Shelby's team and say, hey, this child needs to be, is, is out of school for you know, the next 14 days. Um, because we may don't get that. And so we're exceptionally reliant, the schools to stay open are exceptionally reliant on families doing the things that you know you should be doing informing the school when you have a positive in your household because that means that your kids are at risk of developing symptoms and bringing it into the school. Sharing those contacts, um, you know, whether it's club teams or social gatherings, being truthful. Um, and this is something we have quite frankly seen throughout all of the county and, and the country quite frankly as well is people are, are sort of going around about what they know that they should be doing and they're out trick-or-treating even though they should be in quarantine and you know whatever it may be and all of these instances of us not sort of having this moment of, of social responsibility um, to our community continues to put our community at risk and it continues to put the schools at risk of not being able to stay open just because if we don't know that somebody's been exposed and they're in school and they end up spreading it there, you're gonna have to quarantine more individuals. So the earlier we can find out that somebody's been exposed, um, the earlier we can get them out of that building, the better we have, better chance we have at protecting those. And so I would say that, no, we can't keep up. Um, and I think that that's probably very typical of every community. I know um, KDHE is no longer, is basically rerouting cases back to local health departments because they can't keep up either. Um, and so that is my largest concern at this moment. Honestly, I don't even know where I would start to add to that. We are so overwhelmed uh, with our contact tracing. We are working until 2 a.m., starting again at 5.30 a.m. Um, I just don't know how sustainable this is, truly. Can I add one thing to Elizabeth's statement? If we could educate further in our community, not only staying home or keeping family members home if there's a positive case, but we've had a number of instances over the last two weeks where parents have called to pick up children because they had a family member that was awaiting a test result that came back positive, that those children should have been quarantined at home until that test result was back. And that's happened repeatedly. So if we could have a plea out to please stay home until you know, that exact scenario happened to me today. And I would, 100%. And I would tell my, you too. Not, not my family, but my daughter got a call saying, oh, my dad, I just got home from school and my dad, I just found out my dad tested positive. And we were like, did you both have your masks on? Were you, you know, like, ah. but you're 100% right. If you're awaiting a, a COVID-19 test in your immediate family, stay home. Thank you, Dr. Ziegler. I would tell you too that um, these are real people who are contact tracing, like real 
human beings, nurses who work in our schools, and when they are berated by parents or parents who just flat out say to us, I am not going to speak to you, I am not going to participate in this contact tracing. It is frustrating, it's scary, we're scared for our teachers, we're scared for our staff, but it's happening on a daily basis. And, and again, I would put a plea out for personal responsibility. You have to have some measure of wanting to help each other out if we're going to get through this. Can I, ask, I ask one additional question, just in, in the realm of uh, personal responsibility. Can you clarify, Elizabeth, what the county's guidance is around sports right now? I mean, I, I know we don't want to hear it, but I think we're in a time and a place where we all have to give a little for the community good, and I think a lot of the advice we've gotten from JCDHE is around sports. Yeah, so JCDHE has recommended that winter sports, particularly those that are contact sports, things like wrestling and basketball, do not take place. Um, again, we've talked a lot. I've talked a lot about how masking and distancing work. Wrestling, there's no masking, there's no distancing. Basketball, there's no masking, there's no distancing. And what we know about COVID is it comes out in the respiratory droplets, right? And so as you're breathing heavily, because you're running up and down the court or you're trying to put somebody on the mat, I don't know if that's the right wrestling terminology, but <laughs> whenever you're doing those things, you are expelling more respiratory droplets and thus more virus if you're infected into the air. And then if somebody is face to face with you and also breathing quite heavily because they're also running up and down the court, the likelihood that they then inhale that and can become sick um, is increased dramatically. And so while we have not seen transmission in school buildings, we certainly have seen transmission on athletic teams. So for that reason, we have recommended that winter sports do not occur. Could you clarify that? Is that all winter sports or is that Basketball and wrestling have been specifically identified. It's not, and I can, I have the statement, I can read the statement if it helps, but it does not mention any other, it, it makes a general statement, specifically mentions them. It's unclear about the rest of them. Yeah, so, I mean, I think any sport where that distancing um, and masking cannot occur, so anything like indoor soccer, for instance, um, you know, any of these sports where you are face-to-face -face, um, increases the risk. Anything that you're inside doing. I mean, we, I, before I left the office today, we were working a potential cluster at a gymnastics, um, you know, a, a gym. And so, you know, it's any time that individuals are close to each other, especially right now, where, I mean, quite frankly, the assumption that we should all be existing on is that whoever I am talking to, whoever I'm around, could likely, ha likely has COVID, right? Like that is where we are in this community because so many people have it. So if you are in a situation or your children are in a situation where they're competing in athletics or in anything else that is unmasked, dancing even, right? Anything that is unmasked where you are close together, transmission has the ability to occur. If I can add one thing, and I, I think we'll probably talk about this more later, um, so I don't want to take up the time now. I'm going to pose a rhetorical question, and especially, Elizabeth, for you, I do not want you to answer it. It is rhetorical. Schools have been given clear guidance on this in terms of a statement that was made regarding specifically basketball and wrestling. My question is this. Why is it that schools are given this guidance and, and really expect, desired that it be followed? And yet the county offers these same activities for everybody to participate in. The question I posed, 
concerns me. Schools can't deal with the virus alone. If you can't access it in school, but you can go and access it through Johnson County Parks and Rec or some private entity or a club team, the only difference is, is we know whether kids are engaging in it when they're in school. We don't know if they're doing it out in the community. And then, of course, there's the issue of equity as well. Because for some kids, they can afford to do it. They have a person to drive them there. For other kids, they can't. This is a real quandary. And we can talk about it more later. But I think that's where our society is. <laughs> we can't do it alone here. And schools are getting a lot heaped on them to solve this problem in ways that frankly aren't fair. We want to address this. We do it as a society together. We can't do it alone in school districts. And it is an unfair burden that's being placed on us to make decisions that no one else in society in our community is making. And it's not okay. So we've got some decisions to make as a county about what we're gonna do. I know private entities can do what they want, but public entities can make decisions to adhere to the same guidelines together. So that's why it's a rhetorical question. I, I don't want you to respond. <laughs> Technically, Ms. Goodburn's <laughs> I like what you said. Um, I watched the KU doctors too. I actually watched them yesterday, and and I noticed their heightened level of. Um, and I, I'm I don't know who who can answer this, but what happens when they're overwhelmed? What happens when we don't have any more beds? Who makes a decision? Is, is there any political appetite for the governor to come down and say? We're done. She doesn't have the authority. She doesn't have the authority. Have, okay, so what happens when the when the hospitals we there build is no extra one coming. hospitals? I mean, I, is, I, I don't know what happens. So there is no one coming to save us. There is no There's one no at one the coming. state level. There is no one at the federal level at this time, and there is no one coming from the county level to issue a countywide mandate to shut down, unless I am misunderstanding that at this time. Super. Okay. Well, um, yeah, and they, the one, they did back you all up, too. They said schools should be open. They're not seeing the transmission in the schools from the K doctors. They said it's behavior over location. Behavior, behavior, behavior. So, anyway, that helps. I don't know if it does, but sorry to bring up that, that great point. <laughs> so. That's okay. I want to, before we go, before we kind of jump into athletics, because it seems like we're at that transition, I do want to talk about contract tracing. Because if the wheels fall off of that, then the wheels fall off of everything. What's your capacity on contract tracing for how much longer? Like, either one of you, since you're both pivotal, I mean, both, both internally and externally, that's going to be a pivotal part of the process of determining whether or not we can be open safely. So if we are already staying up until 2 a.m. and waking up at 5.30, and we have significant increased rates coming our way. Again, I asked Dr. Schumacher to give me projections he can't give because he doesn't have a crystal ball, and I will ask of you a similar question. But based on this trajectory, how much longer can the team of five nurses manage to conduct this work? So this week we got four additional staff members as of yesterday um, from the county. We placed two of those in HR um, with Dr. Schumacher and two of those with our contact tracing nurses. Um, you know what? I don't know how much longer we can sustain this. You know, any one of us can be at our breaking point at any given time. I mean, it's kind of like Susan said, 
We have to support each other each and every moment of each and every day. The, this team is amazing. I cannot say enough about the school nurses, um, about the teachers who are helping with this, uh, the principals. It, it takes all of us to do it. But as our staffing capacity dwindles, and as my own nurses are out with quarantine and isolation themselves, symptomatic themselves, I wish I had an answer for you. I just don't know. It could be tomorrow. It could be two weeks. I, I just don't know. Okay. Oh, that, that's okay. I, I know you can't answer it because we don't really have definitive data. I just, I can, we can see the trajectory. Again, this is about informing the community of where we're at. We can see the trajectory. At some point, the wheels fall off. Um, and then it, it is very frustrating to hear that we have members of our community actively frustrating the efforts to provide in-person learning. Like not, just, not just not participating, but actively frustrating them and treating the people who are doing everything they can to provide this educational opportunity for our students <laughs> poorly. So on behalf of this board, I apologize to them. We are all, of course, familiar with getting yelled at, but we signed up for this gig. But um, it, it is no fun at all whatsoever, and I have a significant amount of empathy for them. It really, um, that'll certainly get you in the mental health area for sure. Okay. Um, do we want to go around one more time? Do we want to open it up for a conversation amongst ourselves? Um, do we want to ask some questions about specifically about athletics before we do that? Do, do we, we want to take do... a bathroom break? Just putting that out there as a potential <laughs> what time personal is it? privilege. <laughs> it's 8.49. Yeah. Do we want to take a five-minute break? Okay. Five-minute break. Well, six. We'll make it easy at 8.55. We'll discuss it. Jessica, I'll be right back. Um, I don't think we've got much longer to go, guys. We're almost done. Okay. So part of the athletics conversation and and Ms. Goodburn just asked a question. We have we have right now um, a recommended action in board docs that it it's not a separate document, so it's just after the words recommended action and um, this is I'm proposing this recommended action in part to reiterate that you know we're following the guidance as provided by JCDHE, whether or not it's part of this formal gating criteria or not. If they're providing us guidance, you know we're going to do what we need to do to stick to that guidance. And so part of that is going to involve um, some discussion about athletics tonight. Um, and then it also clarifies that if we're following JCDHE's criteria, that doesn't limit Dr. Fulton from operating the district in a capacity that ends up being more restrictive because apparently there isn't a line, but at some point, <laughs> but it's, at some point for us, we break. And so we can say we're following your guidelines, but if we don't have the capacity to either do contract tracing or have teachers in front of the classroom, or if we reach uh, a spread of 10% either in a room or a building, God forbid the district as a whole. Dr. Fulton would be authorized then to work with our partners to 
get that building or classroom or the district under control and closed. So that's what the recommended action is for. And so I know Jessica raised athletics, so we probably want to have a conversation about what that looks like if we're following your guidance with regards to athletics. You specifically have referenced basketball and wrestling. And that's because the exhalation and the aerosols. Does that mean, you know, does that mean we're fine with regards to the mitigating practices we have in place with choir and with band? Because um, again, they're in, they're inside and there's aerosols. Um, this appears to only apply to those close, those two specifically, just those two specifically, or? No. Sorry, no, I would say any situation where you are within close contact without being masked in particular, um, you know, we've had situations with bands so far, right? Bands have been in, in have been practicing um, inside some. And so we've had situations where we've had to go on a case-by-case -case basis about who should be recommended to be quarantined. Um, certainly singing masked is better, um, distanced is better. Um, but the real concern is that lack of masking in the proximity to one another, which I think is far greater when we talk about things like basketball and wrestling as opposed to band and choir, um, depending on what those bands and choirs are doing at that time. Um, why don't we go ahead and let people ask their questions as they are relate to athletics, either to Dr. Fulton or to JCDHE. Uh, and I'll start with you, Dr. Sinclair. Um, so if, again, thank you. I know you've been taking a lot of questions tonight. Um, if uh, risk um, was aligned in part with uh, the capacity to physically distance and, and wear masks when we're thinking about activities. So um, cheerleading was pulled out of the high risk category if the cheerleaders aren't stunting, is that correct? So if you, are there recommendations you could provide for wrestling or for basketball that would you know, allow for portions of it to move forward with masking and distancing. Like I, I would imagine there's parts of practices and things like that that could still continue until the community works together to bring the rate down. Because yeah. they can and they might. Um, you know, I think that we have some really wonderful examples from our fall sports, which took place. Um, you know, some of our football coaches have done an excellent job. It's all the same things that we're already doing in classrooms. It's the same concepts, right? We're going to cohort. So, you know, a lot of the times that we've seen really large quarantine recommendations for teams is because, you know, if we're talking football as an example, JV was practicing with varsity and special teams. They were all, you know, playing in all these different positions and nobody knows where anybody was at any one time. Well, we can't say who was exposed and who was not. And therefore, A, we're going to need to quarantine everybody to err on the side of caution. And B, we've also put just a lot of people at risk. So I think, um, you know, certainly practices and conditioning and any of those pieces that can be done with masks um, or with distancing, keeping the teams in much smaller groups is definitely advised. Um, and I think coaches have a really amazing ability to impart this information on their athletes too. They are a trusted individual in that person's lives. So helping, I think it's great to also have coaches trying to educate the students on 
what they're doing on co the court or on the field in terms of preventing transmission is also those same things that you need to be doing at home and in the community to prevent transmission. Um, so there are pieces that can occur, but when it comes to games, when it comes to meets, wrestling, I don't know, meets, I, I, I clearly need to get up on my wrestling terminology <laughs> before my next meeting. Um, Th those are those points where you're, you're not going to be able to have that, and then not only that, but if you're com you're competing against other teams either locally or statewide, where differing levels of transmission, differing risks, um, differing behaviors in different communities, um, and so you know there we have seen uh, a, a neighboring school district at least for a period of time had said that all of their student athletes would be virtual, and I think that if there are to be sports, I think that that is a way to add sort of an extra layer between these student athletes and the remainder of the school buildings. Um, you know, so if they are going to go participate in these high risk sports, if that is going to be a thing that continues, then maybe they shouldn't be in the building um, because we know that they're likely at an increased risk of having coronavirus and therefore going to be at an increased risk of exposing other individuals in the school. Um, so I think there are things that can be done. We're not saying it can't happen at all, but these are very high risk, um, particularly the acts of playing games and wrestling themselves. Thank you. Mr. Stratton? Did I lose you? I'll ask again. We'll go around. Reverend Guy? I'm sorry. I'm here. Oh, okay. <laughs> Welcome back. Um, my question has to do with the language in the motion uh, that we're considering. And uh, the third sentence reads, this authorization does not limit the superintendent from operating the district in a capacity that is more restrictive than the recommendations of JCDHE. My question is, probably for Dr. Fulton, would it be more helpful to say in a capacity that it is more or less restrictive than the recommendations of JCDHE to give the latitude on both ends? Well, latitude is always helpful. I think it all depends on how the board feels about the direction that they want to provide to me. I mean, the uh, I think the example that was just given, sports will probably be the one big issue. Let's just be honest here. So, uh, you know, are there mitigating strategies that can be explored and put into place for, let's, we're talking, I guess, specifically for indoor, because we're only talking about winter right now, basketball and wrestling. Uh, that we could explore with the county. It sounds like there probably are, but I don't know exactly what those would be. As it's currently written under guidance, I would interpret this as I would take the recommendation from the county as is, and we would not be doing football, I'm sorry, we would not be doing uh, basketball or wrestling. wrestling during the winter. That would be my interpretation of the guidance this year. I would just put out there that I think as written. I'm sorry, Brad. Go again. Sure. Well, and that's why I'm saying that uh, there's so many scenarios that um, we are yet to uh, encounter, and that's why I'm wondering if it would be more helpful to have more or less restrictive written. So I think if we could discuss that, at some point we're going to make a motion in a second, and then we can make either make amendments and have conversations about the amendments um, just procedurally. But I think that is something to think about because right now the way it's written, it does stop basketball and wrestling it, it, from games. It stops them from games is what I'm hearing. I, what, correct me if I'm wrong, though. I thought Johnson County came out and said they don't think winter sports 
all of winter sports. They didn't just say basketball and wrestling. Do we have the, well, can, the you can you provide us with the language, Dr. Holden? Yeah, the specific wording says, uh, um, this is within the context of a larger letter, okay, but here's the, here's the highlighted, bolded part. Indoor winter sports represent the next challenge in this school year. The risk of transmission of the virus is significantly higher indoors. Therefore, JCHD strongly recommend that you do not allow indoor sports or activities where mitigation techniques are not possible, such as basketball or wrestling, due to the level of community transmission and consequently the risks involved. It is significantly more difficult to implement risk mitigation measures such as masking and distancing in these activities. The chances of widespread transmission in schools is higher if these indoor activities are performed, especially when spectators are allowed. And then it goes on to say, uh, if you decide against this recommendation, it is important to take adequate risk reduction precautions, including masking, cohorting teams, testing to quickly identify infections, not allowing spectators or limiting spectator attendance to immediate family members and monitoring for symptoms. Um, and then just as JCDHA will continue to work with the school districts on these issues. So it, it, it references uh, uh, sports, winter sports in general, but specifically speaks to basketball and wrestling. That, is that an accurate interpretation? Okay. Yes, it is. So along Brad's question then, if, for example, you had wrestling practice, basketball practice, but not the competition piece, would we need to add the word less into this? Or is that in alignment with what's already written? Because it talks about mitigating and being able to implement mitigating practices. Are you asking for my interpretation of it? Yeah, or just from a would so we it's need conditioning. To change? I'm just I'm yeah. asking. I, I can tell you how how I would interpret it as written. That I would I would take this paragraph as written and apply it. And so if you had less or more, it it just from a technical perspective, it gives more latitude. I think the clarification I would need on this is uh, uh, I interpret it as wrestling and basketball not to every single sport, although I have to t seek some clarification on that, I suppose. Well, and by the, by the way, if you go to the National High School Athletics Guides, and remember too, I mean, we, we talked about this in the fall, we're mostly talking about outdoor sports, and outdoors helps. It, now we're moving everything indoors. Now everybody's in close proximity to each other. So we, we understand the risks that's involved with indoor activities. So, um, you know, the other sports would include things like uh, swimming, some activities. I, I don't want to start going through the list because I'll miss something, but that kind of gives you an idea of where we're at. But on the high school association, uh, swimming when you have relays would be considered medium risk. Uh, basketball is medium risk. Wrestling is high risk. Um, but a lot of this goes back to what happens when you move things indoors. That's the really, that's the fundamental difference here. Is that fair from a science standpoint, Elizabeth? Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm just thinking about the reality of it. If we were not to allow, again, I'm, I'm just, I'm sorry. If we were allowed, not allowed basketball, but the county's allowing it, those kids are gonna go play Gable and 
risk the same exposure, if not more, and then come to school. So it's that, kind of a no-win situation. Yeah, that's been my struggle with this. I understand and I, it. And, I'm, and I, I get that you don't control all that, but... Yeah, just, just, to, just to emphasize here, I, I understand the county's guidance completely. Completely. What I'm struggling with is the, the idea that nothing else in the county, it's only the school districts that, that this impacts. It impacts nobody else. So if, they, if we have kids, students go and not engage in these sports in our, in our school, where we know where they are, we can follow symptoms, we can do contact tracing, those that can will go out and they have lots of opportunity to engage these same opportunities outside of school. We have no idea what's happening with them. They will come into the schools. So I, I'd and like what, to we'd share... Have, we'd have less understanding where they are. So there, that's, the, that's the dilemma that we're struggling with. I, I think a piece of the struggle, and, and I feel it in my soul, is I feel like we as a district are trying to do everything we possibly can right on behalf of our kids. We are taking COVID very, very seriously. We've spent all the money we can in all the right places to do as well as we can by our kids. And to sit there and see other members of our community not doing that, even governing bodies, not taking it seriously is really frustrating. I see it. I feel it. But I also don't think it, I'm, I'm actually thinking of like when one of my kids does something wrong and then the other one says, but he did it first. Like it really doesn't absolve you from your responsibility to still do what's right. And if we're getting advice from our health department that we shouldn't be having winter sports, then I don't think we get to turn around and say, but the county is. Like, I just don't feel like that exempts us from following the advice of our health department. I think, I, 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 under, I understand your line of argument completely. And, and I've gone through that in my own mind. Okay, so it's not lost on me at all. So uh, there's a struggle. You know, what, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm struggling with in this whole scenario is not the science of it. I'm struggling with how do we work with our with our students in ways that keep them safe, but also keep them engaged? You know, if if they can't if they can't do, for example, um, uh, competitions, can they at least get engaged and working out as a team? It's not the same, all right. And they'll be frustrated by that, and some won't want to do that. But at least do something where they can, in a safe way, stay connected. And so there therein lies the the dilemma that we're facing. Um, we have had transmissions in our sports programs uh, this week. If you look at this week, I realize everything's kind of winding down, but we really haven't had much from our sports programs at all over this past week. But we did in earlier weeks. So, you know, it's, it's a matter of how much can we, can we put protocols in place to mitigate the spread. That's the real challenge that we're all facing with these ac activities. And uh, basketball's a tough one, wrestling's even tougher when it comes to, to mitigating the, uh, the spread, just by the, just by the nature of the sport. I know Reverend Guy had a question regarding math earlier this week and athletics specifically, so I, you might, I don't know if you want to go ahead and ask it now. Well, and it may not be one even that's in your area of expertise, but, um, but Yes, we've been told that athletes can't wear masks in sports like basketball. I, it makes sense, I guess, in wrestling because you're so close to somebody's face it likely maybe even get ripped off accidentally. But in basketball, we were running up and down the court. I assumed it was because somehow they felt they 
students couldn't get enough oxygen when you're, or is it just that there's so many aerosols that the mask is kind of useless? Um, so it's a little bit of both. Um, I do think that the primary reason why there's not a, there's sort of that blanket, do not wear masks, um, is because we don't know, you know, each individual's ability to exchange air in general may be hampered by a mask. I would say when this question has arisen from, say, club teams, um, we've been, we gave some guidance to some indoor soccer groups. We said <clears throat> we would recommend if they wanted to wear masks, they could, um, but they may want they would should likely consult with a physician prior to wearing a mask during um, high levels of activity, just to ensure that there aren't any issues with oxygen exchange. Knowing sort of the second part of that, um, knowing that masks aren't 100% in general, when you are expelling to that, that sort of velocity of respiratory droplets, you expect it to come out more through the mask. However, every little bit of help right now is great. So. I think the main concern is the physical aspect of, of the air exchange, but certainly um, in consultation with physicians, I think that, you know, certainly we're not going to tell people not to wear masks if their physicians tell them that it's okay. And I'll just add to that that we allow our students to wear a mask, our athletes, should they choose to do so. But Keisha, um, the CDC, a lot of people have recommended during high intensity, which would be your wrestling and basketball, you know, um, that masks not be worn. But again, if a student athlete wants to wear a mask, absolutely we allow them to do so. The other thing is, is that masks are ineffective once they get wet. So you can imagine the sweat. Um, with a wrestler and a basketball player, a mask is doing you absolutely no good once it's wet. Ms. Bergman? So I guess I'm a little disappointed that we've lumped athletics into this um, resolution because I think that it should be considered on its own. Um, and so I don't like that they're kind of a package deal <laughs> following JCDHE. So I guess when we get into that portion of the discussion, if there could be some discussion about removing athletics, because I, I don't like the fact that athletics are part of the same um, resolution. Um, I the national I did get some clarification on basketball specifically. Um, so Keisha does follow the National Federation of State High School Associations guidelines, and. Um, the National Federation of State High School Association has stated that basketball is not a high-risk sport. Um, it's a medium-risk sport. And um, I mean, how do we know that mitigation techniques are not possible? I mean, I just, and again, this, this resolution was sort of sprung on us um, shortly before we walked in. And so we haven't had a lot of time to marinate on it. and. Um, but I mean, even just doing a quick search um, with Keisha, I mean, there's a six page document about 2021 basketball considerations. Um, Keisha returned to school activities, activity specific risk mitigation strategies. And I mean, there's six pages that just talk about basketball specifically. So I think it's unfair. And, um, you know, maybe we won't do basketball. Um, maybe we'll ultimately decide not to do basketball, for example. But I think um, lumping, the two, lumping athletics in with this resolution um, without some due diligence and without 
um, getting the perspective of Mr. Kramer, hearing from community members, learning about ways that maybe we could make this safe. Again, maybe not. Maybe this is all, all for naught. But I, I just do not like the fact that athletics is part of this resolution because I don't, I mean, I love the guidance that we've gotten from JCDHE, although I do feel like maybe, I don't know, maybe the National Federation of State High School Association, a national organization, has spent more time studying this issue. I mean, this is the space that they live and breathe in. So maybe they have more experience in advising school districts on sports rather than another entity. Maybe not, I don't know. But I think that's where we owe our community and we owe our student athletes an opportunity to do some due diligence here. Because I think for a lot of kids, it's more than just sports. It is an opportunity for exercise. It's an opportunity for team bonding, for camaraderie. It's an opportunity for scholarships. Um, you know. These kids are going to go play basketball for Mocan, for Gable, 100% they will. And then there's an equity piece here. So we're saying, well, if you can afford it, okay. But if you can't, well, you know, we've canceled it. Um, so, and to your point, I mean, we take these amazing risk mitigation strategies to keep our kids safe. And they've been proven effective. And the dashboard, I think it says that 22... Um, students have are impacted by COVID. Um, that's not a lot district-wide. So I know that's outdoors. It's not completely comparing apples to apples. But again, I just feel like this deserves more study than for this to be sprung on us just minutes before we walked in um, for us to take a vote on it. A couple of things for uh, just awareness for the board. Um, I believe Winter sports season is scheduled to start November 15th. Is that right? I think that's right. We have uh, uh, we have a uh, protocols that have been developed for winter winter sports that are in the process of being finalized. We are waiting on one, which I think they may have by now, but I'm not certain. One sport, swimming, I believe, uh, that we've prepared, but we have not done anything with it yet, pending what happens, you know, tonight. We weren't sure what direction tonight was going to take, so we didn't want to get anything out ahead of time. Uh, but those have been prepared uh, in terms of how we would address each specific sport with respect to mitigation protocols. So uh, just for awareness, and a lot of that comes from Keisha guidelines and keeping in mind, I know what the health department has shared as well, but uh, as for awareness. Uh, do you have any further? Nope. Okay. Ms. Embry, do you have anything to add? We're just discussing the specific resolution in front of us right now. Is that right? Yes. Well, we're actually we're, supposed to be asking questions, questions about, right now. About yeah. athletics. Thank yeah. you. About okay. athletics. Okay. None. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ms. Goodburn. Um, yeah, I have to agree that I wasn't sure that I didn't know we were voting on this tonight or we were... Uh, and I think I've, I think I looked at my agenda in advance, and I don't know when this was posted. But um, so I, I share some of Ms. Boardman's concerns, and I maybe agree with 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 what Mr. Stratton said to allow more restricted or less restrictive, and leave it 
up to the superintendent to decide whether or not uh, things can go forward depending on how things are going with the sports. I mean, if we're seeing a lot of transmission and need to shut things down on a certain sport or whatever, uh, it's up to the superintendent to make that decision. Um, that, I guess that's what I think. Um, so with regards to the timing, my apologies to that. I talked to Terry today and we got it up this afternoon. Um, Dr. Fulton and Mary and I had been discussing the agenda for tonight specifically. One of the primary concerns that we are hearing from the community is, you know, you are not following the recommendations from JCDHE. You're not following the recommendations of we entered into the red and you're still in the building. And then that involves the conversation of, well, we entered the red, but there was a caveat. Did you see the asterisk that said that they are also not advising that we go remote? And then the other is that you're not following the criteria with regards to sports. We know transmission occurs in sporting activity. And right now, the whereas statement as it was initially drafted was, you know, we are going to be following the guidance from the local county health department and KSDE. And there was confusion on this issue as to where we were at as a district and as a board on winter sports. And so the proposal is that we continue to follow the guidance from the local county health department that is familiar boots on the ground with our current infection rates. So when we seek, a, I will seek a motion in a second and then we can discuss it and we can have amendments to change it and, and we can vote on those amendments. But we do need to have a position on this as a district so that Dr. Fulton can be authorized to do what he needs to do so that he knows when he, if we have sports, he's doing it with the backing of the board. And if we're not having sports, we're doing it because we're following the recommended best practices from the epidemiologists. I mean, this is not a... Didn't we vote, though? On fall sports. We voted on fall Asia. sports. Right. So we haven't been following JCDHE. We were fo Dr. Ariola provided in an email before we voted on fall sports that he I, did yeah. not object to SMSD participating in fall sports. We did not receive clearance on that issue with regards to winter sports from our local county health department. But we did vote to follow Keisha, right? We, had, we did vote to include Not Keisha. alone by itself. Right, and I guess that's my whole fundamental issue with our resolution is it's not clear. Like we've also, we have Keisha in there, we have KSDHE in there, we have the CDC in there, we have JCDHE in there. And so I would strongly urge us to um, really tighten up our language as to what we are following. And so, um, you know, since we did vote to follow Keisha, um, do we need to have an amendment that we are no longer following Keisha? I mean, it's just, I mean, I understand that the community is frustrated because, you know, we hear time and time again, you're moving the goalpost, you're moving the goalpost. Well, I don't know if we're moving the goalpost or not, but the bottom line is it's not clear what we're, what we're following because we have all of these entities into our resolution. All of the guidance we've received from state entities like the State Board of Education, from Keisha, even from the national entities, have said work with your local K 
County Health Department, they will know the rate of infection for your community and they will provide you with the guidance on how you need to operate to keep your community safe. On the one hand, I feel as though that's been an abdication of responsibility from governing entities that are higher than us because rather than grapple with the tough decisions themselves, they pushed it off to local units of government. Fine. We have to know what our local epidemiologist says is okay for our community. And if we don't vote to do that, that's fine too. But I think we need to at least have the conversation publicly so the public understands where we're at. Um, and so we're, yeah. we're having it now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, think no, that's, I... I think that's useful for folks to understand. And then when we walk out of here, Dr. Fulton will know he has authorization to put into place and into practice whatever it is that we're doing as an entity. Um, but I think that it is a fair criticism when we say we're following JCDHE and folks come back and say, well, are you? <laughs> I mean, I think that that's a, that's a fair criticism and to have that conversation. Now, if there are mitigating practices that can be put in place, that's excellent information to have. But that's not the information that has been provided to us at this time with regards to basketball and wrestling. At least not um, in regards to actual games or meets. Right. The other part is with this JCDHE um, resolution, and I understand there is the you know the clause in there that says um, the authorization does not limit the superintendent from the district in a capacity that is more restrictive, and I think it's a valid point to include less than as well. Um, but you know perhaps we get more specific for our community as well because in fact we are using 10% as a threshold to perhaps close down a school or close down a classroom or shut down the district or something. So I think... And that's already a practice that's in place that we already do for other contagions, other flus, other, I don't know, laundry list of things that impact our buildings. Um, so that's already in place. We don't have to vote to approve it. That's, that exists. We can do that independently. I, I think that's yeah. great. I think making it clear, though, to the community, I mean, because most people don't know that, right? Like, nobody's, <laughs> we haven't really been through this, you know, right. space before. So, again, making things clear so people have a true and clear understanding of what we're following and what it means is just helpful, right? So, Well, honestly, at this point, what we're following is we're doing the best we can until we no longer have the capacity to do anything. I mean, that's what we're following. That's where we're at. I think we can get more clear. That's just my, my thought is we can get more clear on this. Just I mean, we can include, so if you want to, I mean, that is the conversation to have with regards to if you want to bring an amendment to include language on the 10%, that, I mean, that's fine. But there's not a, there isn't a line. Right. So, so the best how, we've got, the how best do we, make we that have. clear to our community? The best we have is to say, here are the experts in epidemiology. Here are the experts on how to mitigate spread of an infectious disease. We are going to provide you with guidance. I That's just, what we got. I'm going to let it go, but I do think yeah. there, are some, there are some concrete things we can include in there that make it clear. Um, and it, it would, I think, involve numerous um, tweaks here and there. Um, 
So I, yeah, that's just, Reverend Guy? It just seems like we've moved on to the board conversation and I'm wondering if our guests can, can leave and go home to our family now if we're yeah. done asking questions. I'm probably, I'm fine with that if no other board members have any questions for our guests from JCDHE. No, I do want to say thank you. I really, to, to um, JCDHE and also Shelby, I feel like this is an incredible time of strain on people who work in public health and I am a hundred million percent sure that they're not getting the thanks that they deserve for the incredible amount of work that they're doing. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for attending this evening. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Do we want to discuss the motion then and we'll all seek a motion and then a second and then we can discuss the merits of the motion itself and then we can vote it up or down? Is that where, are we ready for that? Okay, I'm gonna seek a motion on the language of the recommended action so that we can get into discussing that. Second, Sinclair. Oh, I need the motion first, Mary. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I thought you just made the motion. Uh, I don't know if I can make the motion as the president, but okay. that's fine. I will make the motion. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. Is there a second? I'll second, Guy. I'll second. Okay, thank you, Reverend Guy. All right, so that, now we can get into the meat and potatoes of it. Well, um, the way I read it, it's a reiteration of support for the county gating criteria, the county guidance that we've been following all along. So it's, in my mind, it's reiterating a commitment to what we've already been doing. So working hand in hand with the county as our advice in, in mitigating practices. The piece where actually this exchange, I'm now clear as mud about <laughs> what the athletic part means for winter sports and maybe it's saying two things. It's saying it's making reference to mitigating practices and it's also making reference, it makes a very definitive statement. So as a district, do we have to assume the most restrictive part of that statement as it's written, unless they give us greater clarification? Uh, uh, you, do you know what I mean? If we're gonna stay following the county I can only criteria tell you, like we have been from the get-go. Yeah, July. I can only tell you how I would interpret it. I would, I would tend to just interpret literally for what it says. I mean, it's very specific about two sports. It's more general about the others. If you can put mitigating practices in place, and uh, and I think, and then you know, groups like Keisha, for example, they do have specific guidance for us, sport by sport, on what needs to happen. We're able to set the threshold on what we do with who comes into the games, you know, number of uh, yeah. number of uh, uh, fans, which I can tell you it'd be tight because you're in indoor spaces. So, you know, those are all the things that we've been working on in the background, working from that guidance in preparation. Should we have uh, winter athletics? So, you know, if that helps or not, but I, I would have to interpret it as. Uh, we we'd look at we'd look at winter athletics in light of the guide, the general guidance they provided, but they're very specific about basketball and wrestling not not being allowed. Okay, and I heard our and I heard the our epidemiologist say games and competitions, not practice. Yeah, because and I think that's that's probably right because. Um, you know, you could uh, you could do conditioning. 
you can uh, you can you can shoot hoops. You can you can drill wrestling moves uh, and stay socially distanced, but it really limits your. Uh, it's just going to limit your ability of what you can do. It's basically a a modified practice setup, but it's not going to involve uh, scrimmages, actual uh, matches within the wrestling room. It's just going to be pretty severe limitations placed on it. Unless the community rate were to come down. And I. Yes, and I, I mean, honestly, I, I don't know what the rate would have to be because that's not clarified in the guidance. Okay. I, I'd have to see clarification on that. I don't know what it is. Um, are we going in a circle? All right. Does anybody have anything for them? Jessica? Oh, I would just note, I think if we make this to say that it doesn't limit the superintendent from operating in a capacity that is more or less restrictive than recommended, we may as well not say anything. Like, I think that really just leaves nothing but a big blank slate of you could be more, you could be less, you could hit the nail on the head. Like, I don't think it provides any additional guidance for our superintendent and it doesn't give this board any o oversight. Um, so I wouldn't be favorable to that change. Oh, yeah, go ahead, Reverend. Go. I didn't know if you were going Miss Goodfriend? I don't have any problems right now. Okay. Reverend Guy? Um, I agree with Ms. Hembry. I think if we add the words more or less restrictive, we might as well not have any statement at all or any gating criteria at all for that matter. Um, the whole point in saying that JCDHE was going to, to be our experts and we were going to follow their great gating criteria is for them to set the floor, essentially, or the ceiling, however you want to look at it. Um, and that that we wouldn't go beyond that. So if we are going to continue to say that we're going to follow their gating criteria, then uh, then they still have to set that that level that we're not going to go beyond. Um, and so to, in my mind, this isn't any different than anything we've said all along. It's just that because their last piece of information and recommendation was something we weren't expecting to say we're in the red, but you can still have school, but you shouldn't have winter sports. I think that's why we were trying to give some clarification. Okay, then what is Dr. Fulton supposed to do um, with that new information that we have now? Um, as you may have picked up from my comments tonight, I personally think after everything we've heard about this perfect storm we're heading into, I wish tonight we were um, voting on deciding right now that between Thanksgiving and January we were doing remote only for everybody so that parents and teachers could plan. We could send anybody, everybody home to learn safely, <laughs> to have their family celebrations if that's what they're going to do. And, and if the rate is starting to come back down in January, we can come back in. Um, I don't know that anyone else on the board has an appetite for that vote, but that's where my heart would be tonight um, because I think we're going to be there anyway, and I'd rather give parents a heads up to start planning than find out we don't have enough teachers and the community rates are so high that, that we don't have any other options but to move to remote only. I mean, there's something to be said about the definitiveness of announcing that's that sort of thing. Um, I think with regards to the primary students, um, 
you know, I would, it's with regards to staffing, we're going to run out, when we run out of subs, we run out of subs, and it makes sense in my mind to then say, let's prioritize putting them towards primary so we can keep primary up and running um, because we know those kids benefit from the in person instruction. And I, I don't know how much time that buys us. Um, but it, but it buys us time. And so saying, you know, we're just going to announce right now that we're going to be done in two weeks, I think for everybody, I think is based off of the information provided by JCDHE tonight, it might be somewhat premature because we're not, I mean, it doesn't, if it doesn't mitigate the spread and the little ones need to be in the building, you know, I, that's a, that's a tricky spot to be. But we're going to, but as you said, we're going to get there already anyways. I don't know if there's a benefit in having it be more structured. Um, I, I do think that those two major family holidays in the mix now are like, are the thing that, that nobody knows what that's going to do. But we do know that that's the major cause of spreading right now in the community are these these gatherings that people are having. And we know that people are going to gather Thanksgiving and Christmas. And um, I'm, I'm not suggesting it, but we would probably mitigate risk better if we canceled Thanksgiving break. <laughs> it Doesn't the superintendent have... Yeah. Have, have authorization to change modes. I mean, yeah. we don't need to vote on this. He, he can make the decisions, correct, mm -hmm. around this. We've already given him that authority. Yeah, I have, yeah. I have authorization to change modes yes. un under the JCTHE guidance. So we don't need to, I, I guess. Can go, I can go less than. Can't go beyond, but I can go less than. Can go on, on the learning modes. Can I can go, go more, more restrictive. More restricted. I can go more restrictive, yeah. yeah. That's what I meant by less than. Sorry. Thank you yeah, for no, the just, language clarification. Yeah, there. Right. I'd clarify too in terms of the more restrictive, whether it's more restrictive because of operational issues versus more restrictive because of different science or different reading of the science. I just don't want us to get into a place where we're getting advice from the health department and saying, no, no, we're more risk averse than the health department. We're going to do something different than they've even suggested that's even more restrictive that may be very risk averse for COVID, but very well, not risk averse when it comes to, to student outcomes or to child abuse and neglect and other issues. I, I wanna be careful about that, even that being more restrictive piece, because I, I think it it's important. We started off, as you know, of course we don't. We started off more risk averse in the beginning. I think we're at a point now where the districts are pretty calibrated in terms of where we're at. Now, we're not at the same exact place, but uh, everybody's, everybody's kind of, we, 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 we learned a lot from when people went in and what the, what the risk of transfer was. I think we're still learning that a little bit, but uh, it's, it's, it's helpful to have those experiences from the other districts. I guess what I'm saying is I don't think at this stage um, I don't see us being more risk averse. I think the challenge right now for everyone is going to be is what should that mode be given the unknown that we're heading into, and the unknown is not just the the, the inevitable rise in the in the in the uh, in the uh, counts, but the unknowns of staffing and you know students positivity rates right. that kind of thing. So that's where that's where it gets a little bit tough, and I think we're going to get. Definitely get into some judgment calls. Whether that's at the 
classroom, building, or even potentially at district level? I, I ask in part because there's been two really good pieces of news this week about vaccines, and I know we feel like we are in the thickest, darkest days of this because we are, but come March, April, May, we will hopefully start seeing vaccinations happen in our community, and then we're really going to need to be looking to JCDHC to say, okay, we're at 20% vaccinated in our, in our community. Is that good enough? Is it 30%? I have no idea what the answer is, but I don't want to get advice from them and, and then say, and not follow it. You know, I think I want to be aware that there is a light at the end of this tunnel and I want to continue following their advice and, and, and lockstep even as we come out of this, hopefully. <laughs> I want to follow the science. I think it's really critical to, to work in collaboration with our county health department. I'm just really incredibly frustrated that there's no line that the schools are a safer place to be than the community, and that the county is going to continue to offer athletic opportunities for you know offering these sports and telling us not to. Anyways, I just I don't have a solution. I just needed to vent for a minute. Thank you. I don't think that they ha the epidemiologists have control over the right. politics happening right. at the county level either. Right. So, there's, Dr. There's, Dr. Fulton, does it help you to have? that is more restricted, more or less restricted than recommendations? Does it help you in making decisions? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I think as I listen to this conversation, it depends a little bit on the will of the board. Well, and, and, it, here's it, what I, and here's what I mean by that, because I think, you know, obviously there's, there's a, a variety of opinions and that's fine. Um, if it's more or less respect restricted, I think what that really probably, let's just be honest, it probably specifically applies to sports. I don't know that when it comes to in-classroom instruction that it's going gonna, it's gonna to have an impact because we're working lockstep with them on what we can do for in-classroom instruction. I do think looking forward on that point that what you're more likely to see, and it came up tonight, you're more likely to see a tendency for districts to go remote only at the secondary level and try to keep students in, in within class instruction and whether that's all in or a hybrid model depending on what we're seeing with both internal data and the data from the county. Um, that's and a lot of that goes back to all the things that we've talked about previously. So uh, so it really comes down to to um, it really comes down to the issue of, of sports because, you know, do we believe or do we not believe that kids should be engaging in those activities in in the school? So uh, the the more or less gives me latitude to address that issue. I Again, I just don't... S I think where we are right now in terms of our mode of instruction, I don't see it really having an impact on on that. Because we're kind of at that point where we're beyond a definitive data point anyway. <laughs> and they don't have a definitive data point for us. It is, it is interesting, as a side note, I'm going to give you a chance just to kind of breathe deep and relax for a second. Sedgwick County, as you know, may know, came out with some more restrictive guidance for their community related to, uh, this just came out, related to bars, nightclubs, and restaurants closing at 11 p.m., um, they talked about uh, retail stores. It it is, and this is this is the frustrating part for me, is 
um, you don't see consistency across the state in terms of the way people are handling the issue of athletics in particular. They basically didn't even touch it. They just remanded it to the local boards and, uh, well, basically the local boards. So they didn't put any restrictions on it. They did put restrictions on other things. They didn't say, they left that up entirely to the local boards. So you're seeing this kind of happen around the, just like we get recommendations, not requirements. <laughs> so basically since this, I mean, as you said, boils down to sports, um, that's what this is really about. And I mean, to everyone's point, we've, we've already said that, you know, we're following JCDHE, um, although we've said, you know, we fo we're following a lot of things, but we're, we have stuck most closely to JCDHE. Um, and so ultimately this is about sports. Um, and I don't know. Can, can, I, can I make one clarification yeah. on that? Uh -huh. uh, in fairness, substantively for where the discussion is right now, it does. But it also does, uh, I think, address the reality that we no longer have this line of demarcation that when we go into red, we're remote. It does speak to the fact that there's going to be there's going to be decisions made based on softer data, <laughs> whether that again whether that's staffing or student absence, that kind of thing, and recognizing that you may be looking at classroom, which we're already doing, building or even whole district shutdowns based on things beyond just crossing over that, that, uh, that line in red. And I think acknowledging that is, is important because that, that is different than what we've talked about in the past. Yes, and that 100% goes back to what I was saying a little bit earlier, and that's just having that in writing or something to clarify this resolution a little bit more or to clarify our stance because again just as clear as we can get i realize there's so many moving parts this is bananas i mean it's going to change in ways we could never predict and so the more clear that we can get about you know okay we're going to follow jcdhe however you know shani mission has a line and it's 10% and it's due to these things. Just to get clear with our community, I think would be helpful. And that's, you just kind of spoke to what I was, you know, previously talking about. So thank you. Um, so I guess in my opinion, um, I don't know if this resolution um, needs a rewrite, like to include some of those things or um, how, in terms of protocol that looks, um, or if we can just go ahead and add some of that in. And I, I don't know, in terms of voting on this, how that looks, if we need to, you know, make another resolution that's a little bit more clear, or, I mean, because as it stands right now, I mean, I just, in my opinion, I think it could be cleaned up. Is it simpler to just do that very first sentence? I have a suggestion as well, when it's appropriate. Um, go ahead, Brad. I didn't hear what you said. Is that me? Yeah, I just said go ahead, Brad. Um, the first sentence could stay as is. Uh, the authorization does not limit the superintendent from operating the district in a capacity that is more or less restrictive than the recommendations of JCD. H E 
including the determining of, and then from that point on, we take out all of those classroom, school, district level, and just simply insert extracurricular activities to include, and then however we define extracurricular activities. So that we're, we're giving the latitude around extracurricular activities while at the same time saying that we are going to stay with case, I'm sorry, JC, DH, DHE's guidance when it comes to classroom instruction. So the allowing the district to be more restrictive than where JCDHE is at right now was included in part because the impression is that JCDHE is not going to provide any additional guidance on when to shut down and Dr. Fulton may need to do that if we have a 10% capacity issue or if we are not able to operate a building because we don't have staffing to do it. Now, arguably, he's got the administrative authority to do that anyways. So, you know, he could, if, if you can't operate a building, it doesn't matter how many people tell us it has to be open, it's going to shut down. I mean, that's probably technically not within you. <laughs> I mean, that's just... Yeah, that's, that, it, 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 uh, it falls into operations, honestly, in yeah. terms of just making a decision on that. It's, it is helpful to have the public conversation, though, that's for sure, so people have a heads up on it. Mm -hmm. So, I think we have kind of two conversations going on here. One, do we have clarity about what we want to do? Do we have agreement? I get the sense we have agreement about what we want to achieve. It's how do we word it to communicate that? Is, is, is that the no, issue I don't think No, I don't think we have clarity on what we want to achieve because I think I, I've heard both asks from board members with regards to adding the word less in there and then ask from board members to not include the word less because then it doesn't um, provide the clarification we need. So I think what we need to do is if there's a motion to add the word less, we'll get a motion a second and vote on that and then see what happens with that and then we, right? I mean, we're going to need clarification on whether or not we want the more or less because that's, that, that, that is, I think the crux of the dilemma on the the first end. All right, I'll be glad to make the motion well, to amend what's currently before us by adding the word for less restrictive. Second it. Okay. Do I need to second it? No, yeah, I I'm think lost. it needs a motion needs a second. Yep. Okay, so then at that point we're gonna vote yay or nay. Um, and I think we probably ought to roll call it just so that we're clear. Uh, Terry, will you just roll through us? Sure. Thanks. Um, open. Yay. Uh, no. No. Nay. Yes. No. Yes. Yes. No. Okay, so that. So can I ask a question? I, I think I agree in spirit with the edit. I don't think the word, I don't get the wording though. So. Okay. I mean. But it just failed. Yeah, it just failed. Yeah. So now you need to redo <laughs> another one. So um, you yeah, don't I, like the wording. So I guess I don't, can but I, maybe I don't have a sense of what we're trying to accomplish here. Can I ask for a point of order for folks at home? They don't see this language. I don't know if there's a way we can pull it up on the screen or if it's in board they docs. They can. It's in board docs. 
It's in board docs under recommended action. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. For folks at home who don't see it, it's in recommended <laughs> action. It's a little tricky to find. So I'm just trying to get clarity on what we're trying to accomplish here. Are we, if we give him more or less, then Dr. Fulton gets to make the call on what we do moving forward with following the recommendations from JCDHE on sports. Can we remove sports from the resolution and take a separate, have a separate resolution than on sports? Because I don't think any of us disagree that we want to follow JCDHE, right? Um, I mean, we do. We just do on sports, right? We don't. I, yeah. <laughs> I would like clarity. I feel that we've friend. already given that authorization. You what, Brad? I feel that we've already given that authorization as it relates to J, uh, Johnson County Department of Health and Environment and their getting criteria and the latitude provided to the superintendent. Great. And I thought we voted to follow Keisha. And I didn't think we specified that it was just for fall. I don't think in that resolution. I don't understand where you're coming up with Keisha. Yeah, I I'm gonna, I, if I could interrupt, I, I think we're still, we're, we're, there's a big gap between what we've already approved and what this motion talks about as it relates to instructions and modes of instruction. And there's a completely different conversation about sports. Right. Mm -hmm. And so as I read this motion, it's still, as words worded right now, it includes modes of instruction. Well, we can. Which we've already given the authorization to. Would you like to make a motion to remove that language of the second sentence and then we can take that out of the way? So the second sentence is, this authorization does not limit the superintendent from operating the district in a capacity that is more restrictive than recommendations by JCDHE. And Dr. Fulton has that authority under his operational capacity. Part of the portion of including that language in this was to go along with the education of the public to see where we were at tonight and to say that Dr. Fulton has the authority to do that. He, he can, if we have 10% transmission rate or we're not able to operate a building, that building is going to close. He has that under his operational authority, but the public up until this evening did not I mean, for the last week has been unclear under what circumstances, if or when a building would close. So that sentence is somewhat, was part, the discussion was to inform the public or where we're at on that, but it doesn't necessarily change his authority over that. It's just clarifying it. Yeah, he does in fact have the authority to do that. Whether or not JCDHE says a building has to be closed, we could close it. So the, it first, might, it's just the, not first, available. the first two sentences reiterate what we've been doing and already doing. Mm -hmm. The third sentence, this recommendation allows fall activities athletics to continue through competition. That should be winter, right? Not fall. No, that's fall. That that's that allows the fall season to finish. This is this would apply then only to the winter activities per the JCDHE recommendation on winter sports. Is, is this intended to replace our previous reopening resolution or to supplement no, or complement No, this is just it? a separate, this is a recommended okay. action to clarify Dr. Fulton's authority so that he knows what he's doing when he walks out of here. It's just the science has been, JCDHE guidelines have, have evolved with the science. And so this is an affirmation of 
as the science has evolved, are we still on board? Mm -hmm. So do we want to, is there someone who wants to make a motion to eliminate that sentence? Or is it, I mean, is it not necessary to eliminate it since it's, he already has it, or is it not necessary to have it because he already has it? This, which, okay. Which, this, okay, the first, I'll read it in its entirety. <laughs> Thank you. No, I, yeah. The Board of Education authorizes the superintendent to follow all COVID-19 related recommendations from the Johnson County Department of Health and Environment regarding the operations of the school district including in-person instruction and activities and athletics, even if JCDHG does not take steps to mandate or enforce their recommendations. So part of what happened with regards to sports is they removed, if you guys remember, athletics were part of the gating criteria. They removed athletics from the gating criteria. So at one point in time, athletics under JCDHG was a shall not, not a maybe you ought not. It was a don't do this, like supposedly if you crossed the line on their gating criteria, then sports weren't happening. And then sports were removed from their gating criteria. So then they sent out a email. Mm -hmm. Yes. So then they sent us an email saying, don't do winter sports, even though Johnson County is still operating winter sports. They said, don't do winter sports. And all of the data that they've gathered has shown that Infection rates are happening at sporting activities. And so that was what that, when they sent out their guidance and they held a press release and all of the papers wrote about, all the papers wrote about how all the districts were not following this particular guidance, um, that was an email. And so it is possible that JCDHE will provide us with guidance in that manner, but it's not going to be part of a formal gating criteria, and they're going to say this is the best science, this is the best practice, but it's not, there's no line. And so Dr. Fulton needs to know if uh, epidemiologist says this is the best practice and what you need to do to mitigate spread in our community, does he have the board support to do that? Or is he, you know, going to be looking at it from a more holistic perspective of, you know, what can we do to mitigate it even if they say that we're not supposed to? What can we do to cushion the... But you've said, from what I understand, that you would take it literally and so no wrestling and no basketball. Yeah, as, as written, I think that's the way I would have to interpret the resolution because it's giving me very specific guidance to stay within... JCDHE guidelines, and uh, their recommendation is specific to those two sports. So I, I, I would, I would follow it. I hate, I hate to enter uh, too much into your conversation. There is a thought here, but I, I'll leave it as, as a thought only. Okay, just for sake of your debate. But another possibility is. If you want to handle sports separately, if that's something the board chooses to do, you can take out end activities, athletics. That keeps it all in the academic domain and then you can handle sports separately if that's what you choose to do. And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I guess my, I mean, my thought is, I mean, 
perhaps we don't do wrestling or basketball. Maybe not. I don't know. I mean, maybe we do follow JCDHE, but I just feel like, you know, walking in here um, and really reading this just short, you know, right before the, the meeting started, I mean, are we, do, are we doing our due diligence? Um, and sometimes the, 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 you have to make a decision. You know what I mean? Like the work, you know, with the best information you have. I mean, I get what you're True. saying. Yeah, no. I get what you're saying. You're right. I just, I didn't uh, think this was going to be on the docket. I totally, I agree with Ms. Borgman. I have to say, I, I agree with her because I didn't know. I worked all day. I, I work in a retail I didn't see this until I walked in here and had to read it. So I would like more time. But I would agree with taking out if he needs the taking out the athletic activities and athletics out of the mix now and coming up with something differently for that. I guess if we if we want to go ahead and give him the if we feel like we need to give him the power to be able to shut down a school if there's a staffing shortage a specific school or whatever i thought he already had all the authorization he needed to do that and i thought he already had all the authorization he needed also to make decisions on athletics i didn't think we needed to to go here but i guess we do i don't know is the time sensitivity the fact that uh, there are practices that begin on November 15th. Yeah, I think for, for sports there is a time sensitivity to it. Did we already communicate to our to our students and staff and um, parents that we were doing winter sports? I did. We So that's the last communication they've had from the district that we're going ahead with winter sports. Tell me the timing on that. Was that after JCDH whatever came that up was with? After that was after they came out with the guidance. Okay, after so, they came out with the guidance, then and so and then the public, you know, we're good about looking at. Well, I, I couldn't today because I worked, but I mean, did the public know this was coming? Obviously, I didn't get an email today about let them play. I mean, and I'm sure we're going to get them now. So um, I'm just saying, I don't know. Dr. Fulton, was the the decision to move forward with winter sports that you shared already with families based on the prior reopening resolution? Um, it was, and just based on a review, it felt like it fell within my authority, but then the question came up of whether it did or not, and so I think it's important that the board feel comfortable with, I certainly don't want to do anything that usurps or go against goes against the will of the board. So if there's any concerns about it, I'd rather have it addressed and mm -hmm. I'm making sure that I'm following what the board directs me to do. Thank you. So I guess we need a motion to remove athletics and activities from the academics portion. Is that what is needed at this point or what helped me understand what? I mean, you can make a motion to do that if you'd like and then we'll vote on that and then we'll be right back where we're at now, <laughs> but yeah, let's, I mean, yeah, if you want to make a motion to remove. So I guess to your yeah. point then, I mean, because, so that's a good, that's a very good point actually. So to your point, um, because Dr. Fulton does have this authorization already, um, and I, I don't think that that's okay. clear. All right. Sounds good. So I guess I will make a motion to remove athletics and activities from this current resolution in front of us. Okay. I'll second. 
Okay. Um, Terry, do you want to roll call this one, please? Thank you. Yay. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. Okay. So for, for clarifying, I mean, joys of democracy here, guys. Mm -hmm. um, what we've approved allows... No, Dr. what we've approved was the motion to remove activities and athletics. So we haven't approved the whole thing. Thank we you. We haven't approved the whole thing. Thank you. <laughs> Is there something that you want to add to it, Mary? Because um, you said earlier that you didn't agree with the spirit of it, and now athletics and activities are out of it. Is there something that you want to add to it or to do additionally? Um, no, not um, the way I read it now, it's kind of in line with what we're doing, correct? Mm -hmm. correct. Um, but I think that we walk out of here, if this passes the way it's at, then when we leave tonight, Dr. Fulton has the authority to continue doing what he's doing with regards to athletics, whereas um, if we had reiterated our support for following JCDHE's gating criteria, he would no longer be able to operate basketball and wrestling. So if we, if we leave this alone and we pass it, as is with activities and athletics removed without any further language changes, we've stayed where we were at previously with Dr. Fulton having the authority to move forward with basketball and wrestling. Or it modified or whatever works for the health of the district. Mm -hmm. okay. and, and I just want to clarify, I don't have any problem with Dr. Fulton making some of these decisions. What bothers me is that when we take that extra step, in my mind, we've already decided we're not really listening to Johnson County Health anymore. We're just going to decide what we want to decide. And if if that's where we are as a board, we just want to decide what we want to decide, then we can do that. But let's stop saying we're following Johnson County Health Department. So that's, that's where I am on this issue. It has nothing to do with can Dr. Fulton make good decisions. Of course he can. Well, I it, think in this instance it was not very clear. Right. And I mean, that's, that's why we're having all this, we're having a four-hour meeting um, is, is because... Johnson County Health Department was not very clear, and so they said you can keep kids in classes, but you shouldn't do winter sports, and so that's why we're having this vote. But they're going to offer winter sports themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. I understand that, but to Jessica's point, we're the school board, so we can only make decisions about the schools. We can't make decisions about what the county's going to do. No, I, I agree. I just, so I think we're operating from same side of two coins, perhaps, the reality and the practicality of it is that I see the kids are going to be playing anyways in potentially less safe environment than the school could offer. I don't know. So I'm sorry. I'm having, I'm having a hard time with the reality of the recommendations at this point. Mm -hmm. I would note. I mean, well, if I could add to this, I, and to, to Reverend Guy's point, 
I foresaw a second motion to be considered once we stripped away the sports, we would have a whole other discussion and then have a second motion around fall, sorry, winter activities and sports. And that would then speak more clearly to are we following Johnson County guidance in that area also. And I'm, I'm fine with doing that as well if you want to have a separate discussion on athletics and activities and we can talk, talk about that language and then I guess wrap this one up because we still have a vote on this right. as it sits before us. So should we wrap? All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call it and we'll pass this with the language of the Board of Education authorizes the superintendent to follow all COVID-19 related recommendations from the Johnson County Department of Health and Environment regarding operations of the school district, including in-person instruction, even if JCDHE does not take steps to mandate or enforce their recommendations, this authorization does not limit the superintendent from operating the district in a capacity that is more restrictive than recommendations by JCDHE, including determining the mode of instruction at the classroom, school, or district level should local conditions require, e.g. isolation, quarantine, student attendance, staffing shortage, etc. This recommendation allows fall activities and athletics to continue through completion. And I, I was under the assumption that last sentence was struck because struck. it only addresses fall and athletic, athletic okay, yeah. that's So it's struck. So that one's out. So Although that, really that one doesn't change anything anyways because we're still doing fall activities. All right, so. So the practical implications of voting yes on this, I just want to make sure I'm voting yes and understanding what we're voting on yeah. here with, I, I, without it up, is um, that this would allow our administrative team, our superintendent to make decisions about athletics and activities separate from guidance from JCDAG. No, we're gonna talk about that next. Okay. Brad wants, <laughs> Brad wants to talk about that separate from this. So this is about academics. Okay. So if we vote yes on this, it's we're following JCDAG. For academics. For academics. For mode of instruction. Dr. Fulton may be more restrictive if necessary based off of our needs. We're just affirming that. So I would like to make that motion. Well, we are, it's already on. It's already been made in second. Okay. We're I, just voting now. Okay. Can we? So we'll just vote. Okay. <laughs> I think the initial motion was made by Mary, and the second was oh Laura. No. Yeah. Oh. That was initial, and then the second two were amendments. Okay. Okay. It's struck. Activities and athletics was removed, including the last sentence. Okay. Got it? Sorry, Terry. Mm -hmm. Yes. 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 Okay, thank you. Brad, do you want to um, speak with regards to what your, the second conversation would be with regards to athletics? Yeah, I can do it on the fly just reading the previous motion. The Board of Education authorizes the superintendent to follow all COVID-related recommendations from the Johnson County Department of Health and Environment regarding the operation of activities and athletics. 
even if JCVEHE does not take steps to mandate or enforce the recommendations. This authorization does not limit the superintendent from operating the district in the capacity of athletics and activities that are more or less restrictive than recommendations by the JCVEHE, period. This recommendation allows fall activities and athletics to continue through completion. Do you add that sentence? Yep. Um, I did not. I did not feel that was necessary because we're already down that path, but that's a good point. Should be open to an amendment. So bottom line, what the proposal is saying, it's gonna give us grace to do some study and to do some analysis as to whether we move, it's not saying we are, it's not saying we're not, or is it saying? Well, to be, to be, to be, to be specific, the first motion that we just passed regarding instruction, we said we're gonna follow it except where it's deemed necessary to be more restrictive. This one would give the latitude to be more or less restrictive depending on the superintendent's determination. Someone need to second yours? That was your uh, yeah. you motion that, right? Yeah. I'm gonna second it. Okay. So um, I think I lose on this, but I, I'm gonna say I don't think that we should allow it to be less. Um, and I, I don't know that I need to, um, I'm, I'm going to want. I want to be clear on it. So I'm going to go ahead and make a motion to amend to remove the less, and then that way, when we get down to it, when I if I end up having to vote against it at the end, I want it to be clear that I'm not voting against. You know, Dr. Fulton or his abilities. Just that I, I don't think that we should be authorizing things that the epidemiologist at the county level said that we shouldn't. So that's my motion to remove less. From that, I'll second, Guy. Okay, probably want to roll call this one too, Terry. When you get a chance, thanks. Okay. Uh, can you read the, what we're voting on? Is it we're voting to remove less. the word less? Yeah, we're voting to remove the word less. Sure, it's in um, like the third sentence. Sorry, I'll click over. Or the second? Are there only three sentences? Yeah. More or less restrictive. Yeah. Yeah. So the Board of Education authorizes the superintendent to follow all COVID-19 related recommendations from JCDHE regarding operations of activities and athletics. Um, even if JCDHE does not take steps to mandate or enforce the recommendations, this authorization um, does not limit the superintendent from operating the district in a capacity that is the language suggested by Brad was more or less restrictive and I'm asking, my motion was to remove or less restrictive. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. Okay. No. Okay. All right. Okay. And then we'll vote on the final product. I'm sorry, I didn't hear the results of that last one. It, the less is still in there, Brad. It was fourth. All right, thank you. Uh-huh. Yep, ready. Yes. 
No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. Okay. Okay. Okay, so I think you have what you need. Uh, yeah, I want to thank you for your guidance. Yeah. That was <laughs> clear as mud. No, it's it's no, a, I know, no, it's good a, luck. Yes, it, it, it is it is an exercise in democracy, and uh, I commend you on. Yeah. Taking the time to work your way through it, and I feel like I have uh, clear guidance now. So thank he has, you for that. He has the authority he needs to do to do what he's going to do, and it, you know, that is important. Um, so thank you, everyone, for the marathon meeting this evening. It's appreciated. Um, we do actually have board comments on our agenda. Um, so if anybody wants to make a comment, we can roll around the table. I do. Okay. I'm going to make the shortest one, which is, and it's going to be really Pollyanna, and I'm still going to do it, which is to say that I received, we all received, so many emails over the last five days, and I see and hear and feel from parents and from students and from teachers the level of extreme stress and anxiety that everyone is under. I also got a handful of emails that was pointing fingers at someone else and saying, why don't those teachers show up and work, or why are those parents so selfish? And that is what we do not have room for in this district right now. So I'm putting on a little, I feel like Jamie right now, can we all find a little room to be nice and kind to each other? Because everyone is under so much stress and pressure. And if we cannot center our kids in these conversations, and if we cannot assume good intent and goodwill from other people, we are dead on the vine. So my Pollyanna moment, channeling Jamie, just be <laughs> a little bit nice to other people, please, <laughs> and assume people are doing their best. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Goodburn. Uh, I don't have anything left myself. Dr. Sinclair? Uh, I think I've said it all already. Thank you. Yes. Mr. Stratton? Just a thank you for allowing me to participate from quarantine. This is quite the time to be on a board, especially when you're home for another six days. Thank you. You're going to make it. <laughs> Reverend Guy? Thank you. I just... <clears throat> want to give a shout out to the board. Um, thanks for the dialogue. I mean, we may not always see things the same way, but at the end of the day, we all care about kids and staff and what's, you know, and so um, I appreciate each and every one of you and um, I respect each and every one of you and I will gladly stand um, next to each and every one of you. So I appreciate this respectful dialogue and banter and that when we leave here we can still leave as friends um, and yeah, sure tomorrow is Veterans Day so I want to give a shout out to our veterans um, which is like an hour and a half from now so <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna make it <laughs> thank you so much again everyone who is in attendance tonight and had to be here so late it's appreciated